Get up. Gee, you're just like the black spider. Dandy's always having trouble with her. You speak in riddles. What is your name? Don't talk to him like that. He's only a kid. Leave him alone. You should plead for your own life and not for his. He will be safe with me. Who are you? What's going on? Where do you come from? You ask a lot of questions. I will deal with you later. Come, we will return to the ship. Goody! You aren't taking him anywhere. You speak unwisely. Just try taking him. You can't play any of your tricks with me. No. I will show you wonders you have never seen before. Just for dinner, episode 654. Hey guys, it's Jerry Seinfeld again from the Seinfeld TV show. Now we're streaming on Netflix. You might be asking why I'm introducing this episode. That's a very fair question. This week on the show, we kick off Sci-Fi Prairie with three wild science fiction features. Up first, the Moors of Scotland can barely clean the veils and sexual imagery in 1954's British Freak Fest Eagle Girl from Mars. Up next, we break out with the mind control science scene in 1968's The Power, starring in not yet old George Hamilton. But finally, it's Starship Troopers, because we had to. Get ready for blast off, that's what they say in these kind of movies, right? It is time, Earthman. Welcome to Junk Food Dinner, episode 654. This is the podcast where each week we scour the internet, video stores, and cable television, searching for the most outrageous and interesting cult films. In Ohio, I am Kevin Moss, and I'm joined by my California co-host Parker Bowman in the 559 and Sean Byron in L.A. This week we kick off Sci-Fi Everywhere, our month-long tribute to science fiction films of all shapes and sizes. And tonight we're taking a look at Devil Girl from Mars from 1954, The Power from 1968, and Starship Troopers from 1997. But first, gentlemen, how you doing this week? Kevin Moss, I have been watching stuff this week. Oh, yeah? Oh, yeah. I, I feel like my eyes are a little bit... Uh... A little bit beleaguered at this point, a little bit, you know, tired um, from all this watching of stuff I've been doing. Well, hit me with it. What have you been watching? Well, <laughs> all week long I've been watching stuff, but at the end of the week I've only got two things to report on because it, it all added up to just two things, which was a six-hour-long Royal Rumble event that took up <laughs> most of my Saturday. No complaints, oh, no. though. I thought it was great. I actually had a, a fun time watching that with the wife. And then... I watched the entire series of Seven Up movies. Do you guys know about these? The Seven Up series of documentaries. Uh, I, like, treat the, I treat those movies like Seven Up. I never have, never will. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, those are those uh, movies about Cool Spot and his claim to fame. Yeah, exactly. It's it's a lot of Cool Spot uh, surfing on a beach level, as I recall, was the first level of that SNES game. I, I don't remember too much about Cool Spot's lore, but. Uh, no, it's the the Seven Up series is like it's a documentary series that this guy Michael Apted, a British uh, documentarian, started in 1964. And you've probably heard about this because this is like one of those famous like film school kind of things. Uh, but the idea is 
He interviews 20 kids in England in the year 1964 who are seven years old. And then seven years later, he comes back to interview them again at age 14, seven years later at age 21. And Motherfucker is going to do this until everybody's dead, apparently, because he's still doing it. Um, The most recent one was 2019. And it's a wild experience to, like, within a week, meet all these people and then see them go through all the stages of life and, you know, aging and some of them dying off. And it's, it was kind of like, uh, I don't know, like I got kind of emotional, like to see all these lives and this whole century kind of just flash forward, you know, uh, within a week span. So I would recommend it, maybe not for you guys, especially not for Bowman, because it is the most British thing I've ever seen in my entire life. Like I think most of the runtime is dedicated to the differences in the various schooling options that young uh, adults in in England had, you know, in the 1970s or whatever. But um, despite being so specifically British, I thought it was really interesting. Well, it's interesting. I mean, how old is the filmmaker? Because he's got to be getting up there in in years, especially, you know, obviously he was an adult when he started this project. So he's probably going to be outlived by many of these kids, right? I would think so. I mean, it's it I think he's in his mid-80s or something by the time of the most recent film, which was 2019. So whether or not he'll make the next one, I don't I'm not sure. Um And how old I, are the how old are the subjects at this point? I mean, in their 50s maybe? 63 as of 2019. So in a few years we'll get their 70th. Wow. Yeah, yeah and he would have to be then in his 90s if, once, once that happened, right? Yeah, so I, I, I would imagine he's got a plan in place to pass this on to somebody else to take over. Um, but it's it, w- what an interesting idea, and especially at the time in 64. You know, people today do those, you know, one photo a day things where they take a photo of their face and you can see them age throughout uh, a long period of time. And, and people do things like this now. But I think in 64 yeah. for a guy to be like, you know what, I'm going to do this for these people's entire lifetimes. I thought was pretty interesting. Yeah. I mean, obviously boyhood comes to mind, a similar kind of mm-hmm. scenario. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. I first heard of these documentaries when after boyhood came out, people were comparing the two. Well, that's cool. Yeah. I, I mean, where uh, are they streaming right now somewhere or did you? Yeah. I, I saw them on Brit box, which oh, okay. is a channel on Amazon channels or yeah. whatever. Um, you can also get them on archive.org. Somebody has uploaded the entire series, but I would actually recommend seeing them on BritBox or somewhere with subtitles because man, some of these accents, I mean, it's, it's a variety. You get 20 different people, but like the Cockney guy, Tony, man, his fucking accent is impenetrable. And it's actually <laughs> funny to watch these movies because there's nine of them. And so they're playing a lot of clips from the earlier movies. And so you're seeing some of the, the same scenes from their early childhood over and over again. And there's this one scene of Tony talking about his strategy for, for picking up women. He's got the three F's, find them, feed them, forget them or something. And then he's got a fourth F that he leaves to your imagination. But the way that that one little bit of dialogue is subtitled these nine different times, I think it's nine different, completely different statements made by these subtitleists who are trying to wrangle with uh, Tony's Cockney accent. <laughs> Interesting. All right. Yeah. Get the subs, you know, if, if you're interested in seeing what's happened, you know, to the average English person over the past 70 years, seven up. That I am. Mm-hmm. 
Well, the only person I'm really interested that you've mentioned so far is uh, Sami Zayn from the Royal Rumble. I mean, could you believe <laughs> it? The heartbreak, the betrayals that happened to this boy. Man, that, I mean, it's been quite a ride for Sami Zayn, but the level of abuse that he had to see his good friend KO, Kevin Owens, take there, handcuffed to the ropes? I mean, it's, it's, mm. it's inconscionable. It's true. And that, that thing where Roman Reigns threw him into the steps, like with the back of his head hitting the steps, that was like straight out of a ghoul film, I felt. It, it certainly was. So did you watch the, uh, the Rumble or you just see highlights or what? I did. Yeah. I, I don't watch WWE too much. Every once in a while, I'll check it out, but I always watch the Royal Rumble. It's always fun. What'd you think about that ridiculous um, neon like black light match? <laughs> I like only partway paid attention to that. Like anytime Bray Wyatt's on TV, I just kind of tune out because it's always like so silly. But uh, I don't know. It looked kind of cool. I bet it, like if you were there in person, it probably sucked. You probably like would be like, what <laughs> yeah. the fuck am I watching? But I don't know. It was interesting, I guess. What a weird concept. I, I'm guessing that one of the wrestlers was just out at like rock and roll bowling or whatever, you know, and he's like, I want to do this for a match. But then they only gave it like five minutes. I think the whole match is like less than five minutes or something. It's a lot of setup for that. Yeah, true. It's yeah, very odd. They do that with Bray Wyatt from time to time. Like, I think it might have been him. Maybe it was somebody else. Like there was also like a movie tie in that they did with that new Zack Snyder movie, Army of the Dead or whatever, where like they had like a zombie match and. Like, yeah, they just do like these weird product placement matches from time to time. It's very, very strange. There's a ton of product placement going on as well, because there was one of the entrants in the Women's Royal Rumble was dressed up as one of the Street Fighter Six characters. And they kept talking (laughs) about it like, oh, is this one of the moves that we'll see in the new Street Fighter game? And I'm like, what? Yeah, it was like, (laughs) yeah. And one of the another thing that was just completely lost on the audience, because the announce like the audience can't hear the announcers, so she just came out wearing this weird outfit, and everybody's probably like, "What the fuck is happening here?" It's like it'd be different if she came out dressed like Chun Li, which would obviously sell Street Fighter to everybody. But to come out dressed as a new character, it's like, "What are you? What are you doing here? Who? Who is this for?" I also noticed that there's an SNL sketch this week from a couple nights ago that is all about like them recording the voices for Street Fighter Six. And like, it's, it's very heavy on like showing you Street Fighter Six gameplay and stuff like this. And, and I wonder, like, did they, are they paying off SNL to, is that a thing? Are, like, are people getting product placement into SNL sketches? That could be. That seems antithetical to SNL. The SNL from my day anyway, but. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it, you know, except for that time, I guess, that Little Chocolate Donuts paid for that John Belushi sketch. That was pretty well, of course, but other than that, Lauren Michaels is our number one counterculture hero. True, true. Sounds like Kevin Moss is bored to death by this Royal Rumble chat. No, I'm just excited to hear about this uh, Street Fighter Six. Apparently, um, I, I, I just looked it up. I, I was excited to see that it was actually going to be released as an arcade game as well, but only in Japan. So fuck that. Well, just another reason to get you on an airplane, Kevin Moss. <laughs> How am I supposed to go head to head with my local bully at the arcade if I can't <laughs> play it in the states? Just fly over to inv- Tokyo, put some t- you know, put some quarters down on the top of the machine. You know how to do this, Kevin? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Challenge wanna- the Japanese bullies. No, they'll whoop my ass at this game. I'm sure. <laughs> Well, that's cool. Well, I I took in a little bit of British culture this week. Um, 
friend of the show, Justin, did his monthly screening at the Esquire Theater and showed the 1978 art punk classic Jubilee. Uh, have you guys ever seen that movie? I don't think so. Yeah, it's I'm one not- that I had seen a long time ago because I've had the soundtrack for a while. So it's got a great soundtrack. It's got a lot of uh, early British punk, like um, Adam and the Ants before Adam and the Adam Ant went, you know, all MTV New Wave. It's got uh, Wayne County and the Electric Chairs on the soundtrack. It's got uh, Chelsea, a, a cool British punk band. But yeah, it's a really weird British punk movie. It, it has gotten a Criterion release in recent years. And I think it might be on the Criterion channel if you want to check it out. But it was a fun movie to see with a crowd because it was, I mean, it's a very strange movie. And the the crowd that Justin attracts with these uh, late night screenings at the Esquire uh, is, is pretty pretty punk rock. And so the, I, the, the crowd was pretty primed for this. And it was a sold out crowd. Everybody, I think, had a pretty good time with it. And like I said, it's a very weird one. And watching it at home, you might not have the same experience, but seeing it projected with an audience uh, was a lot of fun. Um, but if you like weirdness and you like uh, the you know early days of British punk rock, uh, it's it's a it's a fun movie. So is a lot of it made up of like performance footage because I'm, I'm seeing a lot of like on stage type stuff when I Google image search this. A little bit. It, it, it's weird because it takes a while to get there. Because when I was watching it, I was thinking the same thing. I'm like, I, I remember a lot more music in this. Like the first half of it is almost music less, which is it's more about it. it like takes place in this kind of like weird post like kind of post apocalyptic future where like you know punks have kind of taken over and there's this weird gang of punk rockers. And they're just kind of living in like this like squat house, and um, and it's also very like uh, uh, you know, there's a lot of uh, homosexuality in it for a, a 1978 movie, so it's kind of transgressive that way as well. And you know, it's I don't know, it's just it's it's definitely like like I said, kind of an art film in a lot of ways, and it's the plot is very thin. Um, but a lot of it's just to display kind of this, these weird disenfranchised youth of the, the British punk scene at the time. I mean, it was a lot of people that were, you know, hanging around the Malcolm McLaren sex shop. Um, you know, people that looked cool and maybe weren't necessarily actors, but it is a, a, an intriguing snapshot into that world. And, um, but yeah, there are musical performances in that, um, uh, especially towards the second half of the movie, which are a lot of fun. Nice. I'll, I'll have to check this out. Yeah, this sounds good. Yeah, it's an interesting one. I was, I'm kind of surprised we haven't done it on the show yet. Um, like I said, I, it was one of those ones where I found the record of the soundtrack, you know, just digging through crates back in, you know, my early 20s and always liked the soundtrack, but hadn't gotten around to see the movie until fairly recently. But again, fun to see it on the big screen. And then other than that, the other big thing that uh, I was excited about this week, so even though it's still winter time here, um, the drive-in season is all, right around the corner, and a couple big things they announced at my local drive-in, the Skyline Drive-in in Shelbyville, Indiana. Every year, as I've talked about in the past, they have their Super Monster Movie Fest uh, in August, which again feels like an eternity away. But uh, they announced the theme this year. While they haven't announced any titles, the, the they have a theme every year. Like last year, um, 
it was size matters. So one night it was really big creatures, and then the next night it was really small creatures. You know, so you had like Godzilla and movies like that the first night, and then you know, Incredible Shrinking Man and stuff like that the second night. Um, in the past, they've had themes like Satan made me do it, all satanic themed movies. They've had giant bug movies when animals attack. It was a theme, uh, but this year. The theme is Frozen Frights. So we've been speculating between my friend group and I who go to this of, of what could possibly be. We have we have to figure that the thing is definitely going to be in there, either the um, John Carpenter version or the original, because they do also tend to skew kind of old school with some of these. But I figure that that's definitely got to be one. The thing's got to be in there. We're thinking maybe The Shining. Okay. You know? Sure. Um what about Maybe. Orca? The climax of Orca takes yeah. place in that uh, ice uh, flow. Yep. Justin mentioned that. He said that might be a possibility. And then, you know, they, like I said, because they tend to skew old school, maybe like an old black and white, like an abominable snowman um, movie. or I don't know. I, there's, I was trying to think. There's not a ton of, like, ones that are immediately coming to mind, but um, it'll be interesting to see what they end up with for their Frozen Frights weekend at the Super Monster Movie Fest. Yeah, that sounds like a blast. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, 30 Days of Night, maybe? That's not very old, though. Yeah, well, they do mix in some new stuff, too, so it'll be interesting. I mean, yeah, and we were, there's like obviously like a lot of Christmas ones, but I don't know. That seems like it wouldn't necessarily be good for like a summertime drive-in event, so it'll be interesting to see what they come up with. And then the other big news that uh, came out recently was that the Mahoning drive-in out in uh, Lee Heighton, Pennsylvania, like just outside of Philadelphia up there, uh, announced their first um, big event of 2023 is at the end of April. They're going to be playing Freaked in 35 millimeter. Oh, and, yeah. And of course, that that news got me intrigued. So I wasted no time in securing a ticket and an Airbnb for that bad boy because Man, I'm not going to miss seeing fucking freaked in 35 millimeter on the drive-in. So, if anybody else is in the uh, in the Northeast and uh, is close enough to the Mahoning drive-in, you guys should come out for that. It's going to be a party. Yeah, this sounds super fun. I saw this on Instagram, and you were the first person I thought of who might actually go. Uh, it's very far away from me. It's very far away from me. I mean, it's oh, like true. eight and a half hours away. But <laughs> true, yeah. I'm doing it. I, that's a small price to pay to see Freaked in 35 on the drive-in screen. Yeah, true. Yeah, it's yeah for Freaked, uh, that's that's a very reasonable distance. So, yeah, that uh, it sounds like a lot of fun. I'm sad that I live so far away from New York. Indeed. But, yeah. How about you, Bowman? Anything exciting this week? Uh, no, not really. I've just been hanging around, uh, you know, nothing too exciting here. No, no cockroach, uh, scares or anything like that. Gonzo hasn't gotten into anything crazy this week. So, uh, pretty, pretty relaxing week. So nothing, nothing eventful to, to report. Well, very nice. Well, before we move into the junk mail segment of the show, we do have, uh, quite a big announcement to make and something that we want to make the listeners aware of. Um, so as you guys know, we are rapidly approaching our 13th anniversary here coming up in March. Um, and as we get to our 13th anniversary, um, you know, we've been doing the show week over week for 13 years. Uh, and 
you know, pretty consistently, I, I might say. Uh, never really missing a week. Never really, you know, we'll, we'll take a week off from time to time, maybe around the holidays. But, man, pretty consistently for the last 13 years, we've been delivering an episode every week. And, uh, you know, not to, uh, <laughs> you know, not to, you know, try to garner any sympathy or anything, but it, it is, it's a lot of work. I mean, watching three movies, taking the time uh, each week to podcast, edit, put it out and everything. It's, it's a lot. So um, for me, I, I think after 13 years, it's, it's time to kind of, uh, kind of lessen my involvement uh, with the show. And so after March, um, I am going to be kind of stepping back a little bit from junk food dinner. And instead of doing a, weekly episode of junk food dinner um we're going to continue to do uh, this the show but uh in a monthly format uh instead of weekly well doing junk food dinner as you know it as a monthly format now sean and parker these guys are committed Uh, they're 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 wild men they've got more strength (laughs) gumption and uh determination than i do they're going to continue um with some some form of junk food dinner uh, in the in the interims is to fill the gaps. So you're still going to get, um, you know, a, a pretty heaping helping of junk food dinner. But at the show as you know it today, uh, we'll 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 do on a monthly basis, and then Ch- Sean and Parker will will do something else um, in the interim times. Um, and because we're we're scaling back the regular junk food dinner, we felt it was only only right. Um, we're probably going to uh, to to kind of reduce or take away the Patreon as we do today, because if we're only doing it once a month, we won't be able to provide um, a monthly bonus episode of Junk Food Dinner or, um, you know, a Patreon picks episode each month. So we don't feel that it's right to continue to charge Patreon donors if we're not delivering the same, um, you know, the same rewards that you would expect for your money so at the end of march um we'll be uh, we'll probably we'll, i don't know if we'll take down the patreon altogether we might keep it up just as some sort of a you know virtual tip jar so to speak so if people do like the show or want to just to, you know slip us a couple bucks here and there just to say thanks um that it, it'll still be up but we won't have you know the the tiers the dom deloise patreons and stuff just because again um, scaling back our involvement with the show, we won't be able to deliver the same amount of, of bonus content for our Patreon. So we don't want you guys to to feel like you're getting screwed. So we wanted to give you guys a heads up on this early, just so you know that everyone can anticipate what's going on with the show. So this doesn't come in out of nowhere, and especially for our patron patrons on Patreon uh, who have been giving money consistently over the past years. Uh, we want to thank you for that, and that has been wonderful but we again we wanted to make sure that you guys were aware of that because obviously we know that you know your your hard-earned money uh does not come easily and so we want you guys to be aware of that so more to come we will have a lot more details as we get closer to march on uh how the show is going to proceed but like i said uh, expect if you like junk food dinner the way it is um we will be delivering a, a classic standard junk food dinner episode every month still um, and then in the interim, um, Sean and Parker will be figuring out, um, what they want to do. And if you guys have any ideas, obviously as the listeners, we'd love to hear from you. Um, and you know, let us know, um, your thoughts. I mean, obviously 
as much as I would like to keep doing this as is on a weekly basis, like I said, there's just, you know, after 13 years, there's just, uh, you know, I, I got to, there's certain things that I just have to, you know, that I want to do in my personal life um, that just doing this once a week has prevented me from doing so. So, you know, it's not that I don't love it. I still love doing the show. I love all the listeners and stuff, but just need to scale it back a bit. And, and again, I appreciate Parker and Sean being understanding of this because, again, these guys put in just as much work as I do, if not more. So I don't want to, you know, I don't want to leave them in the lurch as well. So we still want to continue to bring a quality show to you on a regular basis. But uh, we also, you know, like I said, just need to lead our lives as well. And and I think, honestly, I think doing it less, I th- for me personally, I think we'll, we'll make it a better show. I think I'll, um, I'll have a renewed vigor and enthusiasm for the show. I think it'll make things uh, more exciting. Um, and we'll, I think we'll deliver a better product overall. But again, um, let us know what you think. I know this, especially for folks that have been with us for a long time and have made junk food dinner a weekly part of their routine. Uh, you know, this would be a, uh, will be a bit disruptive, but we want you to hang with us and we want to make it uh, still an experience that you guys really enjoy. So we're open to your feedback and let us know. To be clear, Kevin Moss, this change was motivated by Bowman's full moon movie picks over the years or, or no? <laughs> no. Well, that's the thing. I don't, this, this, and I don't want anybody to think this was, this is uh, in any way me, you know, quitting or being upset about anything or it, it, it literally just breaks down to after 13 years of doing this every week, I just, I, I just, I need a little bit of a break and you know, who knows, maybe after a couple years, uh, of uh, doing it on a monthly basis, I might get, um, I might get the itch to to go back to weekly. But you know, for right now, I just like I said, there's just stuff that I need to do personally, and um, you know, I, I you know, I, I don't want to get into too much details, but you know, just from like a health perspective, there's, uh, you know, I've been sitting on my ass watching movies <laughs> and sitting on the computer <laughs> for a little too long, and I need to. I need to get up and get moving, especially after COVID. I mean, we've all been, I think, uh, locked up and spending a lot of time indoors. And I, I just, I don't know. I need to need to make some changes in in my my life personally. And and not that junk food dinner is, you know, the sole reason for a lot of that, but it's it's part of it. And I, you know, I just I want to take time. I want to spend more time with my girlfriend. I want to spend more time with friends. You know, and I love you guys. I love spending time with you, and I I, I want to keep this going. But I also, like I said, just need to think of my my own personal health and sanity. So, anyway, we we'll keep you guys posted with with what uh, ultimately we end up doing. But like I said, it, after March, uh, be prepared for some changes. Um, like I said, we're going to continue to bring you the show that, as you know, it today at least in a monthly format, and then Parker and Sean will be filling in the gaps. Um, with some additional content. So let them know what you guys want to hear and uh, let us know what you think and let us know how we can make it a seamless transition for you, the listener, so that you guys feel like you're still getting the same quality junk food dinner um, and we can uh, keep our sanity. So again, more to come, mm-hmm. but I think it'll be, I think overall it'll be a good thing for the show. I mean, like I said, 13 goddamn years. Yeah. The show's old enough to to get pubes at this point <laughs> i think it's about time we let let the boy go off into the world a little bit without well, so much parental supervision 
Kevin Moss, after 13 years, I think there is only one thing that that I could possibly say to you, and that is... Thanks, Kevin. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks, Kevin. Mm -hmm. Well, yeah. Our little little show's having its bar mitzvah. (laughs) I I do just want to throw out there, if uh, once... Once you're only doing the show monthly, if you start showing up regularly week after week on Wayne's podcast, people are going to be really upset. It's going to break a lot of hearts. <laughs> no, that is, uh, don't worry. I don't think that'll be a problem. <laughs> but yeah, do expect me to start my own podcast where I talk nothing except about Street Fighter Six <laughs> arcade adventures. And Fatal Fantasy. Mm-hmm. Fatal Fantasy, of course. Yeah, that goes. That's going to be the title of it. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, more to come. Um, but again, um, but yeah, let us know uh, what you think because you guys, this is a, a topic that we've been discussing as the three of us. But obviously, you guys are as much a part of this as anybody. So we want to hear from you, get your thoughts as well. So, um, but yeah, speaking of getting the thoughts of the junk food dinner listeners, let's check out. What the folks out there in junk food dinner land have been saying in this week's segment of junk mail. Parker, let's open that voicemail bag and uh, see what the folks out there have to say. Okay. According to the Google transcript, this person identifies themselves as agent. So let's see who this is. Agent food dinner, guys. (laughs) And my recommendation is like ever since uh, Pulp Fiction was big and made a lot of money, there had been imitators. So here are about three of them, some good, some bad. The first from 1995 is things to do in Denver when you're dead. Uh, this has uh, pretty much an all-star cast. We have Andy Garcia, Steve Buscemi, Treat Williams, Bill Nunn, William Forsworth Wright, uh, Gabra Anwar, uh, Frazuka Bulk, Jack Warden, Christopher Lloyd, and Christopher Walken. So this movie starts off with a pedophile. Uh, a creepy guy goes into an elementary school during the middle of the day and tries to grab a little girl. And it cuts to Andy, Andy Garcia's character, who plays Jimmy the Saint, who has a failing business uh, taping, like, videotaping old people who are dying to their loved ones. And then he gets a call from his old boss, Christopher walking to do one last job, so he assembles a team. William Sportswright, who is a tattooed biker, uh, Christopher Lloyd, who works at a, as a protectionist in a porno theater, Treat Williams, who uh, box, uses dead bodies as punching bags, and Bill Nunn, who really hates Treat Williams. So the plan is, is that the pedophile was Christopher Walken's son, and to um, cure his pedophilia, he believes that his former girlfriend uh, can do it because she dumped him. And the plan is uh, to kind of like scare the new boyfriend for before he proposes. A uh, long story short, uh, the plan fails, and that's when. Uh, Christopher Walken tells Andy Garcia that he has 40 hours to leave, or he brings in Mr. Shush, a play by Steve Buscemi, a notorious contract killer. The second one 
from 1997's Suicide Kings, where uh, Christopher Walken plays a mob boss who gets kidnapped by college students and ransoms him because one of the college students' sister is kidnapped. And the last one from also 97 is U-Turn, uh, directed by Albert Stone, in which uh, uh, Sean Penn is... Uh, his car breaks down in an Arizona town where he meets some quirky characters like Nick Nolte, uh, Billy Bob Thornton, and Jeff. Oh, was that the end? Did the follow one fall victim to the three-minute rule? I believe so. I believe so. All right. Well, no, still good voicemail, follow one. I appreciate the call. I appreciate you talking about uh, these as someone who worked at a blockbuster video in the late nineties, I remember this trend very well. Like you mentioned, there was a lot of kind of Quentin Tarantino, not necessarily ripoffs. Cause a lot of these are very different than Pulp Fiction, but they did have the, I mean, there was that vibe where, you know, they were kind of quirky crime dramas with, you know, uh, character actors and maybe, you know, uh, they all had that kind of Tarantino vibe to them. And there was, there was a ton of them. I mean, there were a dime a dozen, but the ones you mentioned are all ones that I did see when they were new, at least new on the, the shelves of blockbuster. I remember things to do in Denver when you're dead very fondly. In fact, I remember renting that, uh, multiple times and yeah, it's, it's a weird one, but there's a lot of, uh, a lot of memorable dialogue in that and some, some very crazy scenes. So that's definitely one to, to check out. Suicide Kings, I remember a little less. I mean, I remember, obviously, Christopher Walken being kidnapped in it. And um, I remember Jay Moore and Dennis Leary being in that. Again, very interesting cast. And um, um, and then U-Turn, I remember even less about it. I mean, I remember seeing it. And like you said, it's got Sean Penn, Jennifer Lopez, Nick Nolte, Joaquin Phoenix, Billy Bob Thornton, John Voight, Claire Danes. I mean, it's got, a, again, stacked cast. Um but I don't remember a ton about it. I remember liking it all right when it came out, but obviously not liking it enough to uh, go back and revisit it anytime recently. But uh, do you guys remember this trend in video stores and in theaters in the late 90s? And have you seen any of these films? I do remember. Uh, the only one of these that I've seen uh, is um, Suicide Kings, which I liked a lot. I thought that was a good movie. Um, my favorite one of these uh, at least I don't really think it's a Tarantino like ripoff or anything, but it gets lumped in with all these is go. The, oh yeah. 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 Sure. yeah I, I think that that movie uh, rules is, is very good. Um, and it, it uh, is kind of in the same vein. There's also a movie called Thursday, which stars Thomas Jane, uh, the Punisher. And that's really good. It's like, I, I, I saw it a long time ago. I forget what happens in it. I think there's some sort of like kidnapping and he's like a former hitman and, like people try to get revenge on him for stuff he did like a long time ago or some such, but I remember that movie being pretty good. So, um, and then out of sight, the Soderbergh movie is probably like the biggest example of this. I think people kind of considered that a Tarantino ripoff, which it kind of is, but which one, um, out of sight, the George Clooney, uh, oh, yeah, movie. yeah, totally. Well, that was, uh, I think, yeah, based on, um, uh, what's the author's name? The guy that wrote, uh, Jackie Brown or Rum Punch, um, Elmore Leonard. Elmore, yeah, 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 yeah. I think that's true. Yeah, so yeah, it's probably more so that it's connected that way to Tarantino um, than anything. But I mean, it. I mean, it does fit in that genre. But I think Soderbergh's kind of doing his own thing before 
Tarantino was even around, so that might be a little unfair on him. But um, but yeah, that movie's good too. Yeah, I like Go, but I I haven't seen any of these movies that The Fallen One recommended, so I guess I'll I'll have to check them out. Yeah, definitely things to do in Denver when you're dead, I think, is the top of this heap. Uh, So I'd say check that out first and then go from there. But yeah, would you good. would you guys consider Get Shorty to be in this vein as well? I, I guess that's another Elmore Leonard, but I feel yeah. like that was one that people would always be like, "This is kind of like a Tarantino-ish movie." Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Well, and I think that's the thing. I think Elmore Leonard obviously was kind of an influence on Tarantino, and then so once Tarantino blew up, a lot more of Elmore Leonard's books started getting optioned into films. It's kind of that domino effect, you know. So, mm-hmm. but yeah, thank you, Fallen One, for calling in. Who we got next, Parker, on the voicemail chain? Uh, We got Eamon next. Hi, this is Eamon from a couple days later. Uh, Sorry, uh, I acted prematurely. I saw that you are watching my movie in February. Blood sugar's a little bit higher. I'm in my warm cart. Eating mint cookies, it's all warm and cozy. So, uh, yeah, sorry for the tantrum. I love you guys. (laughs) Oh, thank you, Eamon. Apology accepted, and uh, we look forward to talking about the adventures of Mark Twain uh, next week on the show. So, thank you for that. All right, Parker, hit us with another one. Okay, here's another one. I believe it's from Eddie. Hey, Junk Food Dinner guys. This is Eddie from New York calling in. I uh, just finished listening to your review of Twin Peaks Firewalk with me. And on the subject of uh, the show that was, you know, on ABC competing with, like, the luridness of the movie, I do have one uh, sort of uh, counterpoint to that. The, in season two, episode seven, I think it is, uh, Lonely Souls is the name of the episode, where basically David Lynch was forced to reveal the identity of uh, Laura Palmer's killer. Uh, that scene, he attacks Cheryl Lee, who was brought onto the show because David Lynch liked working with her, so he made her a new character who was Laura's identical twin cousin, Maddie. He was basically just her as a brunette. And the scene where he, like, she reveals that he's a creep and he's uh, you know, greasy Canadian tuxedo wearing demon bop attacks her and the audio design is slowed and like just the spotlight comes on in this like mundane living room in the suburbs as she's being attacked is super creepy and like disturbing and it's always stuck with me i i actually found it to be more disturbing than anything in the r-rated movie uh and this thing did air on abc so uh, if you guys were ever to dive back into the world of twin peaks and like a shorts episode or something i would suggest picking uh that episode lonely souls because that that, the last 20 minutes of that episode is for me the best of the best of twin peaks it's always uh hit that like just horrifying like melancholic note without actually being explicit sexually or necessarily with the violence either but it it just gets at the core of like a a, you know an assault in 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 a way that kind of I don't know. It just really creeped me out. So anyway, I thought I should uh, share my thoughts on that. Uh, thanks for uh, keeping you know keeping on with the episodes coming out. It always gets me through the week. And uh, yeah, can't wait to hear next week's show. Take care, guys. Ah, oh, thank you, Eddie, for the call and for yeah the thoughtful insight into the world of Twin Peaks. Now, again, as someone who hasn't seen the show, um, I have not seen the scene you're referring to. But Sean, would you agree? Was that scene pretty harrowing? 
I do remember that scene being harrowing. And, you know, to what the caller was mentioning, Lynch has that ability to create these really unsettling moments without any explicit violence or, or anything like that. I mean, I'm thinking of that dumpster scene from uh, Mulholland Drive, you know, when they go behind the dumpster and there's that weird beast there. I mean, nothing really happens. Nobody gets attacked. There's not a squirt of blood on screen, but I, I feel like I've had more nightmares about that than anything else. So I like this idea of diving into the show of Twin Peaks and maybe if I could convince Bowman uh, to watch some with me, maybe we, we might get around to those at some point. Mm-hmm. I think that could be in the cards. Well, very nice. we'll, we'll see how spooked you get by that scene. Yeah. Let's, uh, let's hear about Nick. Maybe he's been spooked by something. Hi, guys. It's uh, Nick. And f- uh, first thing I want to say is fuck T-Mobile. Uh, I blame T-Mobile for that fiasco <laughs> of a phone call last week. And I am hanging my head in shame <laughs> as I speak that that call was not up to the usual high standards of junk food dinner. <laughs> I, I, I had all kinds of you know, cool and important witty observations to say, and it, it's gone. And this week I have shit to say. Oh. It's, it's just boring shit. So, uh, I did want to talk about media play. I don't know if you guys remember media play, but it was a big media megastore. I know it was in the Midwest. It was in Dayton. I think it was in Dayton. I'm pretty sure it was in Cincinnati and Columbus in the uh, 90s. They're gone now. But that was like comfort food to me. You could find anything you want wanted the media-related. Books, movies, DVDs, Blu-rays. If Blu-rays were around back then. Uh, LPs, etc. Anyway, I thought you, if anybody went there, you guys went there. Um, anyway, the point being, I found a store out here in Vegas. It's called Zia Records, Z-I-A, Zia Records. And it felt like media play. All kinds of books and movies and comics and LPs in this big store. It was great. It was, it was like comfort food for me. I wallowed in there for an hour or so. I didn't buy anything, but it was just great to be there. So check that out next time you're in Vegas. Again, I apologize. I hope this car call works. If it doesn't, like I said, fuck T-Mobile. <laughs> uh, thank you, Nick, for calling in. Hey, listen, we are obviously no strangers to audio difficulties here on the show, so we can certainly sympathize with that. But we appreciate you calling, and um, we appreciate uh, you listening. And, yeah, I absolutely remember Media Play. Um, in fact, they were owned by Musicland, um, the Musicland group, with which also owned Sam Goody and Suncoast Video. And as a employee of Suncoast Video, when I was in high school, I, I got a discount at Musicland and Sam Goody and Media Play. So we had a few Media Plays, I remember, in the Cincinnati area. There was one here in Norwood, where I live now. In the Surrey Square Mall, there was one in the Forest Fair Mall, and I think there was one over on the west side of town somewhere. But yeah, they were kind of a precursor. Well, they were like Best Buy, essentially. They're big 
big box media store, but they didn't sell, you know, any fucking, you know, washers and dryers or car stereos or anything. It was all media, as you mentioned, CDs, DVDs, and books primarily. I think they might have even had some video games, um, but mostly movies, music, and books. And yeah, it was great. I mean, looking back, I, you know, just like Suncoast Video and Musicland, they're a little overpriced at the time. I mean, I remember obviously you were paying suggested retail prices for a lot of stuff. And I remember CDs being like 17 bucks and DVDs being like $25. But pre internet, it was it was a buffet for the senses because you could go in there and browse what seemed like a, a huge uh, a huge selection of stuff. And then, like I said, when Best Buy came in, they kind of you know knocked them out because obviously Best Buy offered lower prices and had a similar selection. And it looks like apparently in two thousand one, Musicland itself was purchased by Best Buy. So I guess that eventually got swallowed up in in the Best Buy conglomerate of things uh but yeah 900 or 696 million dollars for best buy to purchase music land and all of its subsidiaries including music land or including media play but um do you guys i mean uh parker you were in dayton so I, I would have to imagine you remember media play um sean do you remember this this chain at all I don't think that they made it all the way out to Massachusetts. We certainly had a lot of Sam goodies. I, I want to say that was our primary um, media store. And then some Suncoast as well. And then I think there was one called Record Town that was a chain. Do you remember that? Yeah. yeah. Those were kind of the big three in my area. But Media Play, not so much. Yeah. I remember Media Play. I don't think we had one in Dayton. But I remember it being around. Um so I don't know, maybe Dayton did have one, because I don't know. I mean, when I was, I don't think I was, I probably went to the Cincinnati one, I guess, but I don't know. Um, yeah, I remember it being around, but it was never my go-to. I think when I like uh, had enough of my own free money to be buying like DVDs and CDs and stuff, Best Buy was already around, and that's where I would go. But I did like the Media Play logo. It like had that cool triangle. <laughs> yeah. Well, and Media Play was a lot of fun, too, because, like I said, I would go there a lot of times without the intention to purchase anything, just to, like, like bone up on what was out there. And just like, oh, man, like, they put uh, Aaron Brockovich out on DVD. Holy smokes. You know, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> That's the reaction we all had to that news. Well, and Media Play also, like Suncoast Video, would get like a lot of the special editions. You know, that they wouldn't get anywhere else. Like, you know, if you wanted to get a, you know, Scream that came with a snow globe of Ghostface or something. You know, remember like they would always have like these weird in package deals where it'd be like, uh, like it'd be like the VHS of uh, Halloween, but it comes with a, a t shirt rolled up and uh, fucking uh, shrink wrapped with the VHS stuff like that yeah get full cheese zombie with a collectible mug attached to it exactly yeah so i love that stuff and yeah and then the best though you get a media play gift card for christmas oh man i was like you felt like you were on supermarket sweep man going in there the thing would be burning a hole in your pocket but yeah definitely love the media play that was a lot of fun and so yeah uh, you mentioned the place in Vegas, Zia Records. I'll have to check that out. We'll have to check that out next time we're out that way. See if it uh, 
recreates the experience. Yeah. I think I've stopped in there before. Uh, one of the times I was in Vegas. Um, I think it was that one. I've been to a couple of record stores out there. And uh, if it's the one I'm thinking of, yeah, it was pretty fun. Yeah. And obviously, I mean, you guys got Amoeba out there in California. That's obviously a giant mega store of media. Yeah. But I mean, it's not really the same as it used to be where like, you know, you could go to any mall and have multiple options. You know, it's cool that there's one big record store to go to in town, but you know, it's a, that's a, that's a hassle having to drive all the way to Hollywood and park. You know what I mean? For sure. But you know, and uh, you know, we always kind of lament those, those days of, you know, having what's felt like a lot of, but I mean, let's face it now there's, so much more stuff i mean we can you know we're, we're getting super limited edition dv blu-rays of fucking dr caligari you know made by boutique labels that stuff that would never work in a brick and mortar environment i don't know I, we have a lot more options now than we used to and it's, it's all true, at our yeah. fingertips delivered right it, to your door we don't really think about that often that like the retail model depends on selling goods that appeal to everyone. And if you want like really kind of niche things that are like very hyper specific, you, you're probably never going to find that in like a mass retail setting. So no. in some ways it's cool that we got the internet now to buy stuff that only six people want to own, but damn, do they want to own it? <laughs> yeah, mm-hmm. for sure. I don't know. I, it's, you always take the good with the bad, but yeah, I mean, as much as I'd like to go back and walk into a media play, I will still take the convenience and the uh, the uh, the selection now of, of modern day. Check out yeah. this photo though. Does does this bring you back? Or this one? That was my yeah. That was my jam. This record town photo that I'm showing you. Oh yeah, for sure. Oh yeah, I remember those. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, is that the last call we got, Parker? Um, yeah, that is the last one. Uh, well, uh, one thing I did want to mention, we do, not a call, but um, a friend of the show, Kyle from Kentucky, uh, has provided us with his list of his top 10 favorite movies of 2022, as he's done in the past. And we'll post these up on the website, but uh, just uh, for the folks, because I, I know a lot of folks don't necessarily visit the website, I just want to call these out. Uh, he's got some 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 good picks. Some of the stuff overlaps with some of the stuff that we picked, uh, but just wanted to run these down real quick and see if you guys had any thoughts on Kyle from Kentucky's top ten of twenty twenty two. He starts to list off with, and I'm not going to go. He he has a little write up for each of these. So again, I'll let you guys go to the website to read Kyle's justification for why he picked these movies. But I'm going to run down these real quick just so uh, you guys can get uh, number ten is Lightyear, the Toy Story oh. spinoff. I know uh, Kyle's a family man, so maybe that played into it, but he seemed to like that. Uh, number nine, he's got Black Phone, a movie that I had on my list that I, I really liked. Uh, number eight, Barbarian, and another much-talked-about horror film of 2022. Number seven, he's got Beavis and Butthead to the Universe. Parker, I know you enjoyed that one. Um, another yeah, one that yeah. Parker, Parker enjoyed. That would have been in my top. If we would have done like a top 20, that would have been there for me. I like that movie a lot. Kind of surprised yeah. that, that I don't think any of us even mentioned it on that episode. But yeah, it, it was a fun movie for sure. Uh, not groundbreaking or anything, but but fun. Yeah. At number six, another movie Parker liked Men. Um, 
at five and four, he's got Pearl and X, two movies that I also enjoyed. Didn't make my top five, but would have made my top ten. Uh, number three, got Guillermo del Toro's Pinocchio, a movie that I mentioned as part of my stop motion uh, 2022. Uh, number two, All Quiet on the Western Front, um, a movie that's been getting a lot of ch- hype lately that I have not seen, but um, obviously a, a harrowing tale of, of World War. And at number one, another movie that's getting a lot of hype that I have not seen, and that is uh, Banshee's of uh in a sharon um and he says it's by far his favorite movie of the year have you guys seen any of these or want to mention any of these that uh we didn't talk about uh but yeah good list kyle i did see banshees of in sharon and i also really loved it i would highly recommend it nice did you see it after we did our uh our list best I- of the year I feel like I must have, yeah, unfortunately. Would it have, would it have made your list, do you think? I, I think it's probably top five material, yeah. All right. Where did you see it? Uh, on HBO Max, which I, I think it's still on there. All right. I will check it out. See it now before it wins all the Oscars. Is that what it's uh, – is it predicted to win some Oscars? I think it's it's – Probably the the most likely best picture, but but who knows? I mean, it could be everywhere, everything, everywhere, all at once, or whatever. I guess we'll see. But yeah, thank you, Kyle, for sending in your top ten list. We we appreciate the uh, uh, the participation. Uh, but if you'd like to give us a call, let us know your memories about uh, media play, or tell us what maybe some of your favorite movies of twenty twenty two were, or just chime in with any thoughts about the show in general. Give us a call on the Junk for Dinner voicemail line at 347-746-JUNK. That's 347-746-5865. As always, you can send us an email at jftpodcast at gmail.com. But where's the fun in that? Let your voice be heard. Give us a call at 347-746-JUNK. All right, that being said, let's get into some nerd news. From the global resources of Junk Food Dinner Worldwide, it's time for Nerd News. The first piece of nerd news that I have some sad nerd news, and that is that Lisa Loring, the star of the original 1960s television show, The Addams Family, who of course played Wednesday Addams, uh, passed away this week at the age of 64 after she was hospitalized uh, after having a stroke. Um, but yeah, uh, in Burbank, California, she passed away. Uh, sad news, obviously, as you know, she was relatively young, 64, and obviously kind of uh, sad timing as, as Wednesday Adams has never been more popular as the Netflix show Wednesday continues to gain new fans and younger fans uh, through viral TikTok dances and uh, just general, you know, goth teenagers will never be out of style and uh, teenagers are flocking to the new Wednesday. But uh, uh, Lisa Loring was the original Wednesday, of course, and I'm sure, you know, even if you are not a grandpa's man like I, you've probably at least seen some clips of the original Black and White Adams Family. Uh, probably most specifically, 
uh, Lisa Loring has Wednesday Adams dancing it up with Lurch uh, in that very fun clip, which was the original Wednesday dance. And uh, fans of Junk Food Dinner will probably remember us uh, in the early days of the show uh, ripping apart uh, Lisa Loring's foray into straight-to-video acting in the 1980s slasher movie Iced, which she starred in, uh, which we notoriously... Uh, I think pretty much universally hated on the show. Uh, but also, in addition to Iced, she was in um, other things outside of the Addams Family, including uh, being in The Girl from Uncle, Fantasy Island, Barnaby Jones, and uh, in the 1980s, a reoccurring role on the CBS soap opera As the World Turns. Um, but yeah, obviously, sad to see her go. We love the Addams Family. And. Uh, so obviously this is a bummer. So R.I.P. Lisa Loring. Did you guys hear about this? And did you have any thoughts? Yeah, um, that's a bummer to hear, uh, especially now. Like, it seems like re- really weird timing now that everybody's talking about Wednesday Adams. So um, and also, I, I do want to point out that uh, Iced uh, did have its fan. And that fan was Mark Fredo. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, he loved <laughs> all that one. shit. <laughs> There's one person out there who was a big fan of this, so. Uh, so yeah, yeah, this is a bummer to hear. Yeah, um, it certainly is a bummer. It certainly is, you know, weird timing, like you said, Bowman. Kind of unusual that she would choose to die at such a, a peak popularity period for her character. <laughs> but uh, you know, that's that's her way, I guess. Um, no, it's it's sad. Uh, too young for sure. Rest in peace. Yeah. Speaking of sad nerd news, I, I literally just saw some more sad TV news. Uh, it looks like Cindy Williams of Laverne and Shirley has passed away at the age of seventy-five. Was it something I said? <laughs> Hopefully not. Uh, and I'll, I'll also not movie related, but um, Tom Verlaine of television yeah, passed away this, this past week, weekend. which was yeah. a, a bummer. Big fan of television. Love those albums. And uh, well, you, you love Marquee Moon, and you've listened to the other one three times. <laughs> oh, advent- I like adventure. Adventure, you like it? Yeah, and I there's like the adventure. that live record that's not too bad. Yeah, well, and then they got back together. They had that record in the '90s, and Tom Verlaine's got that doesn't sold. count. Yeah, and but Tom Verlaine's solo records are pretty good too. Yeah. Obviously, man's a musical genius. If 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 all he had ever done was Marky Moon, he would be, you know, you know, he'd, a legend. He'd be valued, yeah. I mean, it, those interlocking guitars, we all love it. So, um, yeah, yeah. Rest in peace. Well, speaking of rest in peace, I got some news for you. Uh, Showtime has canceled Let the Right One In, the TV miniseries. Well, I guess not even miniseries if it's being canceled. The TV adaptation of the book and uh, movies. This is something that uh, came on around Halloween and just like quietly existed without anybody giving a single shit about it. (laughs) And um, I haven't even watched it. And I don't even know why this would even be a thing, considering we already have a book and two really, really good movies that we can watch rather than this. And it's also kind of weird, like to make a mini series out of on account of like, it's a story about like a pedophile who's in love with a little girl vampire. Uh, it seems like a weird thing to add a, adapt in, in, in the current year of our Lord. Um, but more importantly, Apparently, Showtime is getting folded into the Paramount Plus network, which I didn't know, which is good because I don't have Showtime, but I love Paramount Plus. So this is good news uh, for me. 
But uh, I don't know. Did you guys care about this show? Have you guys even heard about this show? Would you ever watch such a show? And how do you feel about Paramount Plus? I don't care about this show, although I did like the movie. I, I just haven't gotten around to the show. And, and maybe it's good. Who knows? But I do care about uh, this Showtime news because Twin Peaks famously is on Showtime, mm-hmm. a network that I also don't have. I don't. I can't imagine that there's a single person out there in this country that pays for Showtime. Like that seems like uh, such a, a wild extravagance to be like, I'm gonna I'm gonna pay for the thing that has almost nothing on it. I I, 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 I pay for Showtime. <laughs> well, Kevin Moss, <laughs> Jesus well, Christ. I actually did pay for it for about six months. I got it uh, like a year or so ago to watch the new season of Dexter. And then I watched like three or four episodes and then just forgot that I had Showtime. <laughs> so, oh, yeah. That shit happens. Uh, yeah. But now it can be on the same place that I that I watch Beavis and Butthead. So that's cool. Yeah. Well, yeah, I guess I will probably have to be canceling my Showtime through my cable <laughs> and get this Paramount Plus. Because I don't have Paramount Plus now. Because... God damn, how many fucking streaming services do I need to have? I have so many already. But this one has all the Beavis and Buttheads with the music videos. I know, but Jesus Christ, between Criterion Channel and Netflix. They got Yo! MTV raps on here, Kevin Moss. Not all of them, but maybe a dozen episodes or something. Uh, It's too much. Get rid of Netflix. What are you watching on Netflix? Well, they're going to come out with a new season of I Think You Should Leave. I can't get rid okay. of it until that fucking comes out. Oh, my God. He admit it. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> That's the thing. There's always one thing that I, I mean, like, yeah, Netflix sucks. I would get rid of it. But I know there's like four things that are going to come out next year that I'm going to want to watch on it. Well, sign up then. Yeah. Netflix sucks, dude. I, I've had Netflix for like two months out of this whole fucking post-pandemic time. Like since 2020, I've had it maybe like twice for a month run, and I've never found anything that I want to watch on there. I don't know. Yeah. Well, the I, way that Netflix gets you is like they don't ever announce anything. Like they just drop stuff. So it's like y- you'll find out like, oh, my God, the Munsters is coming out in two days. Well, I guess I got to have Netflix. So it's like you just got to keep it for like when they just announce some shit that you're vaguely interested in watching. I just can't in good conscience give any money to the to the streamer that still presents Seinfeld in that ridiculous aspect ratio. Like it's been <laughs> it's been like a decade and they haven't fixed it. Like what, they know that it looks like trash that way, right? They would have to. I mean, yeah, I think like uh the HD version of Buffy the Vampire Slayer was like came in some shitty aspect ratio so you could see all the crew members on the sides. And I think that that's been fixed. I don't think anybody has that version anymore. So they should fix the Seinfeld version. It, it can happen. Buffy showed us it can happen. That's even better if, if you were getting extra screen space. <laughs> like Because on Seinfeld, they're, they're cropping. You know, like they crop oh, in hard okay. to make it widescreen. And there's multiple jokes that don't play anymore. Like there's an episode where... I forget what it is, but like Jerry drops something on the ground and they're talking about something that's on the ground that they're pointing at, but you don't see it for the whole fucking scene. <laughs> yeah. I think that happened with the Simpsons when it went to Disney plus, but I, it might be fixed now. I don't, I don't remember, but, but yeah, that sounds pretty bad. Yeah. I'm actually com- not, not in any rush to watch Seinfeld anyways. Yeah. This whole conversation makes me think I should just cancel all my streaming services. Yeah. Just go watch fucking, yeah, these shelves full of Blu-rays that I have and be done with it. 
Cancel everything except for BritBox. Don't be crazy. <laughs> I got a bit of nerd news, um, and it's it's about our friend Robert Eggers, who I was afraid would, would maybe never work in this town again after the box office bombing of the Northmen. Uh, but I got some good news to report. Willem Dafoe is in talks to join the cast of a new version of Nosferatu to be directed by Robert Eggers. Uh, Defoe was, of course, recently directed by Eggers in The Lighthouse, and it's worth noting that Defoe actually played Count Orlock in the 2000 film Shadow of the Vampire. Um, his role in this remake, though, is unknown. I guess Bill Skarsgård is going to be playing Nosferatu in this, and uh, Lily Rose Depp also has joined the cast. Um, it's going to be for Focus Features... Uh, blah, blah, blah. Yep. He's writing and directing. So good on Eggers. But did you guys see this news? Do you have interest in a new Nosferatu from the guy that did, uh, the Vich and the lighthouse and the Northman? Well, he seems like the man to do it. I mean, honestly, if, if I was, if someone said you got to do a, a Nosferatu in 2023, who should do it? Seems like he's got the, the sensibilities and style to do it. Likes working in black and white. Likes the creepy tension. So I think that's a good fit. Um, but do we need another Nosferatu? Eh, maybe not. But hey, if anything, maybe it'll turn a whole new generation on to the, uh, you know, to the character and maybe have him go back and check out the older versions. You know, the uh, the classic original from 100 years ago or uh, even the... Um, the the Werner Herzog one. Yeah, well, for my money, I, I feel like if you are going to make a vampire movie, why not make a Nosferatu? I mean, they're making all these vampire movies. Most of these fucking vampires are handsome as all hell. You know what I mean? They're all dashing looking, like Nick, Nicholas Cage's of the world. Let's get a creepy guy with a weird shaped nose and bizarre flappy ears. You know what I mean? That's my vampire. Sure. Yeah, I love a good Nosferatu. Uh, I'll check this out. I, I feel like between Renfield and this, like we might be living in a, a, a new Dracula Golden Age. Yeah, seems like it. Yeah. Well, I think on that note, we are going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we are going to get into our first sci-fi February movie of the month and of the show. And that is the 1954 black and white Devil Girl from Mars. So stick around. Have you always wanted to have Kevin Moss locked up in your house? Now you can. Just head on over to junkfooddinner.com for more information about it. You can pre-order a stunning piece of artwork based on the likeness of Kevin. The beautiful Kevin Moth statue. Previously available only as a Patreon giveaway. We're now selling direct to you, a listener. Dazzle potential romantic interests with this one-of-a-kind artwork that reinterprets your favorite JFD host, not as a man, but as a moth. Get it now on JunkFoodDinner.com. I used to make love to my wife. Whenever we wanted. It was wonderful. So when I couldn't, I tried to avoid it. I tried to avoid it, but it was a problem. For both of us. For both of us. But then I made a call. And now... I'm back. I'm back. I'm back. We are back. We love hearing from our junk food junkies. 
call today at 347-746-5865 or just click the call now button on Facebook. If you or your partner isn't living life to the fullest, there's something you can do. Make this call to get your free confidential information. You'll learn what you can do about it. Since I made the call... We're making love again. And again. <laughs> for your free confidential information and see if you can recapture your love life weigh it up what else gives you such value mars with all the goodness of milk glucose sugar and thick thick chocolate big bar enjoyment and big bar value weigh it up mars a day helps you work rest and play Just six days, the Lord made the world, and while he rested, the devil made a curve. Once I walked out in the sun, now happiness for me is done. Who's it gonna love me and be sincere? Who's it gonna hold me? If I'm lonely, if I'm blue, I want you only, but the devil's in you. Well, I'm gonna go where you can't find me, I'm gonna break the spell to find me, and I'm gonna say get thee behind me, yeah. Strange shape descending from outer space with relentless purpose. Where did it come from? And what did it want of us? Hello, hello, hello. It's an aircraft to a white building. Nothing I've ever seen before. Hello. What do you mean? Hello, hello. It's like something from another planet. Do not try to follow me. You cannot get help. Around this house, I've drawn an invisible wall through which no one may pass. Here is a news reporter with a world-shattering story. A girl trying to escape from her past. The scientist trapped 
in spite of his knowledge. And here also is the barmaid, hiding a murderer's secret, a murderer with a life already forfeit, and introducing the devil girl from Mars herself. Get back on fire, you fool. Get back! Shoot, man, shoot! Back to Junk Food Dinner, the first movie we're going to be taking a look at on our inaugural sci-fi February episode of the month is Devil Girl from Mars from 1954, I believe. Uh, yes, 1954. Uh, this is a British black and white sci-fi movie. Uh, it is directed by David MacDonald, and it is about a leather-clad female alien that comes to a bed and breakfast uh, outside the Scottish Moors and basically holds a group of lodgers hostage while she makes various demands and uh, just generally ruins their day. (laughs) Uh, Amongst the lodgers there, there is an escaped convict from a local jail. Uh, and a lot of that plays out in the first parts of this movie. In fact, there's a lot of this movie before the leather clad female alien shows up. That's just kind of a, you know, British drama about a bed and breakfast and it's various, uh, patrons and, uh, workers. Um, but anyway, this is a movie that I had been familiar with for a while because I feel like, I'd seen a lot of the imagery in sci-fi and horror magazines throughout the years. You know, if you read, uh, you know, the kind of stuff that I am into, like Famous Monsters of Filmland and various other kind of sci-fi heavy publications that focus on these kind of campy older movies. Uh, This one seems to pop up a lot just in in its imagery and iconography. Um, And, you know, the, the... the image of Patricia Lafon, who plays Naya, the titular devil girl from Mars, in her leather-clad outfit is pretty striking, especially for 1950. Yeah, it's. I mean, it's. There's obviously sexual implications, um, you know, as she's uh, with her, you know, domineering way and black leather-clad outfit. She's obviously kind of like proto-dominatrix. Also, some might say that her outfit was uh, somewhat inspiring to the Darth Vader outfit, you might say. And, uh, you know, she just looks cool. And she also has a spaceship, a flying saucer, that she lands in that I think also looks cool. Um, It's a little reminiscent of, like, the day the Earth stood still, but uh, I think it still looks really cool. And I... So I was always drawn to that just that image of 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 the devil girl from Mars and the spaceship and I you know I'm like I got to see this and a lot of uh reviews and things that I read has 
have described it as high camp. And I'm, I, I love high camp. Uh, I'm often high when I go camping. And I also <laughs> love the idea of just like a campy sci-fi movie, you know, like along the lines of a plan nine from outer space, a, so I married an alien from outer space, stuff like that. Kevin Ross, like, you don't have to sell us on this movie. It's called devil girl from Mars. <laughs> I, I think we know why you picked it. Yeah. Well, and that's the other thing. Just the title cracks me up. Not devil woman from Mars. Despite the fact that she is very much a woman, it is devil girl from Mars. Yeah. yeah. And with a title like that, I figured, because, uh, and, and at this point, you know, being a, a nerd of advanced years, there is a lot of these campy black and white sci-fi movies that I have seen or that we've done on the show, but this is one that I had not, had, had yet to get around to. So anyway, that's why I picked it. Um, that being said, I, I would be lying if I said I wasn't a bit underwhelmed by this one. Uh, like I said, there's quite a bit of interplay between the folks at this uh, bed and breakfast, this kind of lodging house. Uh, the, there's a lot of this melodrama between this escaped convict and the woman that he knows that works there that's kind of hiding him. Uh, and then various other people. And then when the devil girl from Mars arrives, there's a lot of back and forth where she keeps going back to the, the, the cottage and like bringing people to the ship and some of them trying to like pull one over on her. And then that doesn't work. So then she comes back and says, all right, now that you tried to trick me, you're all going to die. I'm like, well, what if we do this? And she's like, all right. And then they're like, they'll try to trick her again. And she's like, now I'm not going to fall for it again. Now you're all going to die. <laughs> And they're like, well, what about this? And she's like, well, all right, you're right. I do need a guide for London when I go there to take it over. So maybe I'll bring one of you with me again. And it's just a lot of back and forth, not a lot of action. I mean, it's it's pretty dull, I guess, in terms of plot. Uh, but that being said, it is only 77 minutes, like a lot of these older uh, black and white cheapies are. Uh, so it's not a huge time investment. But even at 77 minutes, I, there's probably only about, I don't know, 15 minutes of worthwhile material is, by my estimation in this. So not a lot of bang for your buck. But if you're like me and you like these kind of campy old 50 sci-fi things, there might be some stuff for you to enjoy. But just don't go in with super high expectations. Uh, overall, I thought this was eh, merely okay. I'm glad I saw it. Oh, there is a giant robot. She has a giant <laughs> robot. That's pretty cool. Yeah. I mean, it's, I mean, very lame and it's 1950s, <laughs> but I think it's cool. Like I like, I like that kind of lame 50s stuff. Reportedly uh, that robot was fully mechanical. There is nobody in that suit, which I think that's kind of cool. Well, that's impressive. Um, I would have guessed there was at least some, but it is large. I mean, it, it stands like 10 feet tall. So I guess it <laughs> would have been hard to have somebody actually in it, but yeah, I mean, like I said, cool costume, costuming i love the devil girl from mars i love her spaceship i love her robot everything else is just kind of yeah but overall like i said just kind of a, a mediocre watch but some cool imagery um you know some cool stuff that maybe you could uh, project behind a band uh or at least put on a t-shirt um it it does it's not without its fans though um apparently the uh, science, famous science fiction author Octavia Butler um, 
was inspired by this movie to begin writing science fiction at the age of 12 when she saw it. Uh, and then also according to Wikipedia, Los Angeles avant-garde artist Gronk, not Rob oh, Gronkowski, but the artist Gronk, uh, cites this film as a crucial factor that guided him in his career. So, I mean, we all knew that. This is so Gronk-esque. I mean, it goes without saying. <laughs> yeah. Um, but being British, I'm sure Parker <laughs> had some issues with it. But what did you guys think of Devil Girl from Mars? I had never seen this Devil Girl from Mars before. In fact, I'd never seen any movie produced by the Danzigers, as one of the title cards very proudly proclaims at the beginning of this, who I, yeah. I guess were like pretty well-known in the, the British film producing scene at this point in time, such that they got their own uh, very fancy title card with their little signatures under it, but didn't know those guys outside of their work on, on the Mother music video, I guess. But... <laughs> um, I do also remember seeing this title around many times and, and seeing this poster and like books of old sci-fi posters and stuff like that. And like you said, a lot of this sounds really exciting on paper, uh, but then it plays out in a pretty boring way, at least for a good chunk of the runtime. Uh, part of that probably is all that weird melodrama at the beginning that you mentioned with the escaped convict. And there's like this, star-crossed lover kind of a subplot where they're, you know, they're throwing out all this very melodramatic dialogue with, you know, real hammy music underneath. And, um, and this is also one of those movies, you know, that, and I think this is kind of a common sign of a low budget movie, but it takes place all in one location. <laughs> right. Um, you know, and it's pretty hilarious how pretty early on when the devil girl shows up, like one of the very first things she says is, um, I, I don't want anybody to even think about leaving here because I've set up an invisible force field around uh, the inn. <laughs> <laughs> it's just like the most preposterous line, uh, you know, obviously very convenient for the filmmakers. But I don't actually hold that against this movie because I, I kind of like uh, movies that are set in, you know, single isolated locations, whether it's something like Assault on Precinct 13 or there's actually one from the 1930s with Humphrey Bogart called Petrified Forest that's set at like a tiny roadside diner in Arizona, I think it was, that was kind of cool and, and kind of reminded me of this with its claustrophobia and kind of these different characters. That movie, on, on, on one hand, you know, features melodrama that I cared about. Like these characters were interesting. Bogart's playing kind of the ex-con and you don't know whether or not you should trust them and it's all exciting in this it's just kind of like bring me to the devil girl like i'm i'm very sick of these humans like uh and and once they do get the martian sex queen on screen things pick up you know and and i was on board because there's definitely some fairly wild stuff going on with that lady um on wikipedia there's a claim made that uh famed fetish fashion designer john sutcliffe may have designed that costume it's it's not fully confirmed, but I guess the screenwriter made that claim. Um, and he's a guy, John Sutcliffe, who had a huge impact on, on this whole look. Like when you think of things like, you know, leather and, and latex bondage gear, I think that primarily comes from this one guy, John Sutcliffe. Um, he made a lot of these costumes that look kind of like, kind of like the costume uh, that David Carradine wears in, in death race 2000, you know? Yeah. Um, and it, 
yeah, I, I like that look. I mean, it, I think it looks really cool on this lady. And uh, the actress herself just kind of has this really icy toughness to her that I, I thought worked really well for the character. And to be honest, I mean, if you happen to be into S&M in 1954, this was probably your favorite movie of all time because <laughs> uh, like they didn't really make this kind of stuff for you back then. I mean, outside of like underground stag loops or something, this was probably the only way for you to get your rocks off. So I, I do appreciate it on that level. And yeah, like you said, there's some fun sci-fi elements in here. There's a cool like vaporizer gun that I liked. Um, I like that dumb robot as well. I thought the flying saucer was kind of cool. It, it looks weird. It, it looks kind of like something you might use in a 1950s kitchen to make grapefruit juice or something, but I, I still liked it. Um, fun fact via Wikipedia that I, I just noticed, the sound editor for this movie is Jerry Anderson, uh, who would go on to create the Thunderbirds and Captain Scarlet, which I think we're reviewing either next week or at some point this month. So it's cool that uh, stop motion legend Jerry Anderson was involved or marionette legend Jerry Anderson was involved here from uh, an early stage as a sound editor. But yeah, if you're in the mood for like that classic 50s sci-fi stuff, I think probably the prime strength of this movie is that you probably haven't seen it. Uh, you know, it being British and it being a little bit outside of kind of the circle of these movies that often get trotted out at, you know, American film festivals and, and things like that. Um, it's cool to see kind of this slightly different take from a, you know, slightly different culture. Um, it is a bit boring, but, uh, you know, it, I, I think they make up for it with the weird SNM stuff. And if honestly, if you need like a follow up to nude on the moon, uh, this might make like a fun little double feature, you know, because of, you know, the, the sexy space vibes of it. So I didn't love this. I didn't hate it, but I'm, I'm glad to have seen it. Uh, yeah, I feel similarly. Um, I'd never heard of this, but immediately it kind of reminded me of this movie that I watched on a whim, uh, a while back called the man from planet X. Have you either, you guys seen this movie? I have not. I know what you're talking about though. Same. I'm aware of it. Okay. Yeah. It's kind of the same conceit where it, it takes place in Scotland in on the Scottish moors, like out in, you know, like some little hotel or bed and breakfast, like out in the middle of nowhere. And then an alien comes. Um, so yeah, kind of like the same conceit. It came out three years beforehand. Uh, the alien is a lot cooler looking. Um, or maybe, or maybe not a lot. He's different looking. He's like, he's got a weird face. Um, but yeah, so it kind of reminds, like, I figured how many, in the span of three years, there's two movies where an alien visits people uh, on the Scottish moors. How, how strange is that? But it's probably just like some set, I guess, that they had that, I don't know. I don't know if it's the same studio, but um, but, uh, but yeah, I don't know. Kind of an odd coincidence that two movies took place in the same sort of setting, similarly. Uh, so it reminded me of that. And then after that, it just reminded me of of boredom because all these people are <laughs> before the <laughs> alien shows up. Uh, they're all just very boring talking about uh, nonsense. And then alien lady showed up, and I liked her. And yeah, I mean, like you guys said, like the, you know, there's a lot of S&M vibes. And yeah, like, I mean, it seems like pretty transparent nowadays as to what they were going for. Like this S&M lady shows up and just like ridicules all these men and like is talking bad about them. Like, I, I definitely think that 
the director was probably like getting real horny about this. Like this is like his secret kink or something. Cause yeah, she pretty much just shows up and calls them all cucks and talks about how their penises are little. So like, I, <laughs> like it's very like thinly veiled uh, kink here going on. There's definitely um, some scenes in this that are supposed to make your penis hard. Absolutely. Your tiny little cuck penis. is going to get hard watching <laughs> this. Um, and then, yeah, like, I mean, it's like, you know, and she was fun to watch and everything, but like halfway through, I kind of like lost the plot. I was like, well, what the fuck? Like, is that all she came to earth for us to just kind of gloat and brag? And like, yeah, kind of, <laughs> like, you know, like at least with plan nine from outer space, there's a plan nine that came from outer space. And here, like this lady really just showed up just to talk shit to people. And on one hand, it's like not very fun, like as a movie, it's not very cinematic, but like on the other, yeah, like. She just showed up to talk shit to these people. Like, that's kind of fun. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, not like a big a big plan. I mean, I guess she's got that plan about, you know, finding dudes to take back to her planet for sex and everything. But uh, that's a really not, boring not plan. Before, not before stopping off in London to blow up the joint. Yeah, got to blow up London. Um, which seems rude. But, you know, but whatever. Um yeah, so, and then, yeah, like you said, they just kind of uh, trick her a bunch of times and then kind of like, which like, I don't know, kind of like diminishes her power a bit, but, um, but I mean, she just does shoot a lot of them, with that cool uh, gun. So, uh, I don't know, I guess she gets it back, but, um, but yeah, outside of her funness and her cool outfit and like her, her performance, there's not a lot here and it has like a lot of those tropes from like old sci-fi that I don't like where like she's like invincible. That's never fun. Although I get, I mean, it wouldn't be very cool of a movie if they would have just shot her halfway through, I guess. <laughs> so, I don't know. Maybe in this case you need her to be invincible, but um, yeah, I don't know. I was glad I watched it, but um, I don't know. It would have been better in color. I think if this had came out a couple years later and had color and you could like see her big crazy outfit and stuff like that. I think that that would have helped this movie a great deal, but, uh, but I don't know. It's, it's okay. I guess. Did you guys like the part at the very end, like seconds after one of their close friends has perished in a terrible way that they're all <laughs> cracking jokes and <laughs> laughing. Yeah, I did like that. That yeah, was fun. It's the Scottish way. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, I think that's, I think we're all kind of on the same page here. Not mad that we watched it, but, Maybe not the most exciting science fiction movie of the 50s, but definitely worth uh, checking out if you've seen every other campy piece of uh, sci-fi up until that point. Uh, But yeah, I think on that note, we are going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we are going to get into our next sci-fi anyway pick. And that is The Power, the hit song by Snap from 1990. No, the power from 1968. Ladies and gentlemen, the three. Gentlemen, what is this gentleman holding up? It's a round, golden, solid object. It is a, a watch. A wrist This watch is water-resistant and dust-resistant, is it not, sir? Correct, Dodo. But it isn't an ordinary watch. Is more accurate than an ordinary watch, right, sir? Correct, Dodo. You never have to wind this watch. It is an electric watch, right, sir? Correct, Dodo. 
The electric Timex, an incredible $25. Who'd ever guess an electric watch could cost so little? With automatic calendar, $30. Equally incredible. My head is spinning and I'm in the world. It looks so much like a new different world. My head is spinning and I'm lost in space. It looks so much like a beautiful place. Somebody pulled it out as a sort of a gag. 
this is most extraordinary. May I ask then if anybody here cares to admit to this documented superiority? Well, this is most extraordinary. But then I suggest we get on to something else. Why? Are you afraid to believe it? Believe what? Just what are you talking about, Professor Halsey? I think Henry's a little... Well, it looks a little bit tired. You see, Mr. Norland, we've all been working very hard on the committee lately. Yeah, you're all afraid. All of them. This person, whoever he is, he can do what he wants with this committee, with, with the whole project. He can take control of all the minds in this room. That's wild speculation, Henry. We've got to go by proven and documented facts. Yes, that's enough, Henry. Gentlemen, please, I don't want to interfere with the procedure here, but I do find the supposition quite intriguing. Oh, this is most extraordinary. Tell me, Professor Holston, are you talking about a power that is actually capable of preternormal and transcendental phenomena? Yes. <sighs> then prove it. Give us proof. Frankly, I think we've wasted enough time as it is. Now, now, surely we can think of some simple test. Professor, what do you suggest? Yes. Professor, what do you suggest? Yes. Professor, what do you suggest? This person, whoever he is, he could do what he wants with this committee, with, with the whole project. He could take control of all the minds in this room. All right. It won't take very much to move it. We'll begin. We'll go right ahead, Professor Lance. succeeding in doing is getting a headache. Uh, Professor Scott. Do my best. I'm sorry, I, uh, I tried. Uh, Professor Melnick. Yes. Uh, it's no use. If no one will admit to the questionnaire, he won't expose himself in a test like this. Well, then I think we've been about as indulgent with your theories as anybody could expect. Together. We'll do it all together. No. You've got to. Why not, Tanner? I just want to have an end to it. All right, go ahead. I I've forgotten, though. Do we put our hands on the table? Or... All right, welcome back to JFD. The next movie on the show tonight is going to be The Power from 1968. Not to be confused with at least a half dozen movies with the exact same title. Uh, or not to be confused with the classic banger by Snap, as Kevin Moss alluded to before. This is the George Pal production from 1968, uh, who, if the name doesn't ring a bell, he's one of the guys who produced a bunch of 1950s and 1960s sci-fi movies, uh, including titles like Destination Moon uh, or 1953's War of the Worlds. Uh, or 1960s Time Machine, a movie that I, oh, yeah. I've always loved my whole life. Uh, the guy, George Pal had a background in stop-motion animation uh, before becoming a producer, which is probably why you see a little bit of stop-motion in this movie, and I think most of his movies. Uh, this one was directed by a guy named Byron Haskin, uh, who also directed War of the Worlds for George Pal. Uh, he directed Robinson Crusoe on Mars and, and a whole bunch of other stuff across many decades of work. This being his final film, though, Byron Haskin, so... He went out on this note, whether it's a high note or a low note, I guess I'll, I'll see what you guys think. But I had never seen this movie before. Um, I arrived at this as a pick for the show 
via two very scientific methods. Uh, number one, it had a rad-looking 1960s psychedelic poster. Yeah, and that number poster two, is sweet. Yeah, the, the poster rules. And number two, it had the rad-looking 1960s Suzanne Plachette in it, who also rules, if you ask me. So those two factors w- were enough. Um, it seemed kind of intriguing from a distance. Uh, and let's get into it. The plot takes place at a weird high-tech laboratory uh, wherein a bunch of scientists are studying the limits of human endurance for NASA's planned space missions. Among them are are two leads played by George Hamilton and Suzanne Plachette, uh, which, by the way, for somebody like me who only knows George Hamilton for being a silver fox at the red carpet events, uh, it's kind of wild to see him, you know, in this movie with a full head of jet black hair. Uh, yeah. But, well, not only that, but like George Hamilton to me, and maybe he's just before my time. And well, I mean, obviously he is, but like I always know him as just that tan guy. Like I knew him like as a celebrity, but never really knew like his work. You know what yeah. I mean? Like yeah, I, can, I don't know if I've ever seen maybe like love at first bite or like i don't know but i I just (laughs) he doesn't seem like somebody that like i'm familiar with his work i just know him as a personality which (laughs) i mean i feel the same way but i think that we are just kind of um blind to how popular this guy was if you look at his filmography you know it's a lot of movies that nobody talks about anymore but the guy was working pretty consistently throughout all of the 1960s in leading roles. So, I mean, I'm guessing that sure. those movies had to have made money. People liked him. Um, but yeah, it's, it's weird that he's, he's certainly a, a huge blind spot for me. Um, so, you know, I, I was excited to, to see him in this, you know, with that full head of jet black hair, you know, uh, being the hunkiest scientist in the space program, you know, finding ways to remain shirtless while doing science. Uh, I was there for it. Uh, Anyhow, early on in the movie, the head scientist guy declares uh, that he's discovered test results among their group of scientists that show that one of them supposedly has superhuman mental powers, uh, powers like ESP or telepathy or telekinesis, things like this. Uh, But nobody among them will admit to having these super mental powers. And so short, go ahead. Now, besides just to further the plot, is there a reason why they don't reveal who it is or like you'd think, I mean, cause it's like, it's one of us in this room and they're like, well, let's, uh, you know, like I, again, I don't get I, why. Like, well, yeah, they really kind of drop it. Like I, 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 <laughs> they're not I think that there is a reason, but I think we have to spoil every single thing that happens in this movie up to like the very last scene. But I think there's a, I think the person who has the powers ultimately didn't know that he had the powers at the time. Okay. Is, is what I think. But anyhow, this movie has all kinds of weird twists and turns. So they're trying to figure out who, who's got these mental powers. They even do like a little test where it's, it's kind of like that scene in John Carpenter's the thing where they're doing the blood test, but this is like, we're going to do a telepathy test and see who can move this pencil across the table kind of a thing. Uh, that's a fun little scene. Uh, but nobody admits to being the person who can do this. And so shortly afterwards, uh, this head scientist guy who discovered these test results and is kind of inquiring about who this could be, uh, he turns up dead slash murdered. 
Uh, George Hamilton is the prime suspect for this death slash murder. And so now he's on the run together with Suzanne Plachette because she's a babe. You know, why not? Let's let's include her, uh, which takes them to all sorts of wild locations like uh, the Death Valley Salt Flats make an appearance. Kind of cool. Uh, there's like a carnival that he goes to at some point that leads to a all time great stumbling into a carnival funhouse when in a panic scene. You know, that kind of a scene that was seen in, in multiple <laughs> yeah. movies, but they do it here in a way that I thought looked really cool and ends with George Hamilton riding a merry-go-round at high speeds and his lips are being pulled back from the high speed, which is very funny looking. Um, and anyhow, that's that's the movie. You know, they're on the run. They're suspected for murder. They're trying to figure out which among them has the telekinetic powers and it will all lead to maybe a telekinetic showdown at the end. Um, but not knowing anything, not knowing anything about this going into it, I was certainly a little bit lost at first. Um, the plot in this movie kind of reveals itself in like a weird way where I I just felt like points were never being communicated clearly to me. And it it also feels just kind of slow and and grandpa ish at, at, at the start. And, you know, it takes a while, but I will say, you know, once the plot becomes clear, I, I got pretty into this. I, I think George Hamilton himself is a good lead. I, I think his character is fun in this. And I, I think, you know, the locations he goes to and kind of the, the events of his journey are generally entertaining. Um, I, I think also this movie was probably an influence on altered states, certainly on scanners. I'm, I'm guessing that Cronenberg must have seen this before he made scanners. Um, and a lot of people call this a early tech noir uh, you know, and, and cited as being an influence on things like even Blade Runner or, or the Terminator. And I think I can see some of that in terms of like the distrust of technology sort of thing. And I, I it's kind of got a noir kind of plot structure, you know, with the running around and, you know, the um, being suspected of murder and, and all this. But I don't think it plays into technology paranoia as much as you might expect for, you know, for a movie that is set in the Vietnam era, you know, and it does have some of that kind of generalized Vietnam era paranoia, you know, anti-government paranoia, stuff like that. Uh, but they don't really go too far into, into the tech stuff, unfortunately. Um, it is also, I think, a movie that is firmly planted in 1968 in terms of how it depicts sexuality. Like this is a movie that has these weird little hints of sexuality. Like there's little hints of nudity and, and things like this, like no actual nudity, but they make all these little attempts to kind of titillate you. I, I felt like, um, and it's certainly the kind of movie that feels like if it was made three years earlier would be like notably less sexual. And if it was made, you know, in the 1970s instead of 1968, it could be like potentially, you know, much more risque, but it's in that kind of weird, uh, middle ground where like Hollywood wasn't really yet allowed to be too sexual, even though it's, it feels like this movie wants to be uh, overall, you know, it's, it's not a very heavy movie despite being about kind of government, government conspiracies and things like this. Um, it's, it still has some laughs here and there. Some of, some of them even on purpose, I would say like uh, there's one scene where there's an old lady that strikes George Hamilton in the face with a fly swatter I thought that was kind of a, a funny little bit. And then maybe some of the laughs in this were less intentional. Uh, there's a scene in which they discover one of these scientists who's been murdered 
inside of like this zero gravity spinning machine, you know, like those big fulcrums that spin around yeah. and they find the guy who, who has been, you know, stuck in this machine spinning around for hours or whatever. He, he's been spun to death. And when they find him, he's got his like eyes popped out and his tongue is just kind of popped out in this very goofy way. I guess it's kind of grotesque for the time for 68, but it also just looks mostly very goofy. Um, but goofy stuff aside, yeah, I, I had fun with this. Um, like I said, I thought George Hamilton was good. I also am always on board for Suzanne Plachette. I think she's as likable as ever in this. Um, and there are a few other fun, familiar faces that pop up, including Lily Munster, Yvonne DeCaro yeah. is in this. Uh, 4EJ Ackerman shows up for a second as a hotel clerk. Um, so, you know, I, I think there are things here for cult movie fans. Uh, this is currently a, a low def affair, um, sadly. Uh, but even without the real pixels, I think you can still see that that 1960s color pops on occasion, you know, especially in that scene at that swinging party where you, you got this band of hippies on stage playing real jangly rock and roll music and everybody's dancing around in these super colorful 1960s clothes. Um, I thought that looked cool. And, and then you also have a cool climax to this movie that, uh, you know, they throw a bunch of psychedelic imagery at you real quick that I thought looked kind of cool. Kind of reminded me of that Japanese horror movie, Jigoku, uh, but certainly a, a cool little climax to this movie. So Hopefully this does get the pixels someday because I, I would like to rewatch at least those scenes with better definition. Uh, anyhow, yeah, this movie's not perfect. I, I wouldn't say that this is a five star affair or anything, but it's a fun little weird one that I think could have only existed in its time. Uh, but what did you guys think about the power? Well, I'd never heard of this power before, um, but it sounded intriguing from the block, the, the plot synopsis. Um, and I I like like for a while I was like, well, is this a Fredo movie? But it's like, but then I like realized that like I, I like the vibe of like the very low science fiction. You know, like um, you know, like like how Game of Thrones is like low fantasy, you know, like because like there's dragons, but mostly it's just like medieval. Like that's kind of like what this is for sci-fi. Like it's Yeah, I mean every character in this is a scientist. That is true. Yeah. And it's and it's a fictional story. <laughs> yeah, I think that it's definitely more fictional than science, but I'll I'll take it. I think it's kind of cool like to have this um I mean basically it's just like north by northwest but like with a little bit of a science fiction uh plot device to it, which I think is cool. Um and definitely reminded me of North by Northwest. Uh, a lot of stuff in this um like you know, the fact that this guy like going from place to place, kind of on the run, uh, mistaken identities and stuff like that. Like big set pieces, big natural set pieces. Uh, although I think in North by Northwest, they're not, a lot of them aren't natural, but um, yeah, I, I kind of got that vibe. And then, yeah, to, uh, scanners as well. And then also, oddly enough, there's a movie that De Palma did called The Fury, which is a lot like this as well, that I did have uh, on the schedule for Sci-Fi Abuary and then took it off at the last minute. But it's a lot like this, where it's 95% of it is just like a, a kind of a political thriller chase movie, but there's a like science fiction bookends to it. Um, so I, I would imagine that De Palma might have seen this movie um, and, and taken a bit from it. Um, 
so, so yeah, so I kind of like, I liked all the vibes to it. Uh, there's also a fun uh, kitchen fight between uh, George Hamilton and an assassin that I liked, a very close quarters kitchen fight. Uh, that's always a lot of fun. Uh, also, very funny that George Hamilton plays a man named Jim Tanner, considering how tan he would <laughs> be in the future. <laughs> it's, uh, I thought that was interesting. Uh, also the one guy who kind of like near the beginning who pops up dead, his wife calls George Hamilton and she's like, Oh, you know, he's not home from work yet. You know, do you know where he might be? And he tells her, Oh, don't worry about it. He's probably just out drinking. And I liked (laughs) that (laughs) this was a time where that was like a perfectly reasonable, don't worry about it sort of a thing. Um, very innocent times. Um, I, there's a scene um, at they're at like one of the the parties or shindigs or maybe they just left the parties or shindig, and George Hamilton sees a note that says "Don't run" and he's like shocked. He's like, "Oh my god, it's a note for me that's telling me not to run. I, I'm I'm had." But then it like a guy takes uh, a piece of it and it says, you know, that the mayor tells candidate "Don't run" and it's like just a newspaper. I like that scene. Uh, like um, stuff like that really reminded me of North by Northwest, like cheeky little like jokes like that. I think uh, very, very Hitchcockian. Um, so I like that stuff. Um, the movie really kind of like grinds to a halt to, to get us at that crazy party with the rock band, um, which I guess isn't necessarily a criticism because it takes us to a crazy party with a rock band, but like they really <laughs> like really everything just gr- like stops as far as like, the plot uh, for a while. Um, so I don't know, I guess if you're like super into the plot, maybe you could do without that. But, uh, but what I liked about this movie most is, yeah, it just takes us from place to place. Like, you know, you're in the desert, you're at the rock uh, party. You're at like the, we- like, and then they go to like the weird sleepy party where everybody's like partying, but they're all asleep. And then like, there's weird weekend at Bernie stuff. Like, I don't know, just like all the crazy set pieces that they jump to. Um, like just kind of um, independently from the larger movie itself, I think is what I liked about this. And then I don't know. I kind of lost track of what powers people had and what was going on with all that crap. But, um, but yeah, I just like this very pleasant fellow kind of just going place to place. So I don't know. Yeah, it was, it was all right. It was okay. I, uh, I like, I liked it mostly. Yeah. 1960s is a weird time for sci-fi films. Like when I think sci-fi, you know, I think 1950s, I think 1970s, I think 1980s. But like the 60s, when it comes to sci-fi, uh, mostly I think television. You know, I think uh, Star Trek, the original television series. I think Lost in Space. You know, I feel like sci-fi had kind of moved to TV. And outside of Planet of the Apes and a few other notable exceptions, there wasn't like a ton of big sci-fi but the 60s are kind of an underrepresented time for sci-fi because there are these little ones these you know kind of uh these kind of forgotten gems uh amongst this and i would consider the power to be one of those because it's it, it is sci-fi i mean i wouldn't say this is afraid of pick at all i mean you know between the you know like you said they're scientists they have telepathic abilities and and all that and that's all very sci-fi there's a lot of you know uh, laboratory stuff and 
you know, this is totally sci-fi, but it is under that 1960s, you know, lens of, you know, like you said, there's the sexual revolution is kind of in the mix, the, but it's not like hippie. It's uh, more of that like swinging 60s, you know, where dudes in suits were going to these weird rock parties, like you mentioned. Um, but yeah, the cast is cool. Again, a lot of people that I like but don't necessarily have a lot of uh, experience with, like the aforementioned George Hamilton and Suzanne Plachette and Yvonne DiCarlo. Um, and yeah, just the whole idea of kind of this, like you said, kind of tech noir uh kind of film um you know kind of like alphaville for example another one that would kind of fall into that tech noir uh category but like you sean i had a hard time connecting to this out of the gate um there was a good 15 minute chunk at the beginning where I mean, I was following along. It's not like I didn't understand what was going on, but I just, I, I wasn't really like connecting to it. Uh, I really didn't, you know, have a ton of emotional or, uh, you know, just any sort of investment into the characters. And I was kind of trying to figure out where we're going with all this and, and what exactly I was supposed to be kind of looking for. And that kind of came and went throughout the movie. Like, there'd be times when I'd be really invested and like, okay, I'm locked in now. I know what we're going for. I know what these two are trying to pull off. And then five minutes later, I'd be like, what the fuck? What are we doing here? Like, what, what's the ultimate objective here again? Who are we running from? Who, what's the problem? So I, I was kind of in and out in terms of my emotional and intellectual investment into the movie. But even still, um, without being 100% invested, I, I still had fun watching this, and I still think it was uh, an interesting watch. I mean, just like you said, every time I thought that I was kind of losing steam with it and was like kind of mentally checking out, something wild would happen, whether it be, like you said, that, <laughs> that dude in the centrifugal force machine with the eyeballs and tongue hanging out, even as corny as that was, that got me right back in. I was like, okay, cool. And then, like you said, the party scene with the band, even though, as Parker mentioned, it does take a long ways to get there and it does kind of slow the plot down. I'm like, okay, here we are. Um, I liked the beginning, too, when they kind of describe their their research as like they're like sadomasochists of uh, the scientific world, like just essentially putting these uh, astronauts and scientists through various stages of torture just to see what limits, you know, man can endure uh, when it comes to space travel and things like that. seems like a fun job just uh, being, you know, essentially torturing human beings for a living. You know, I feel like they should have hired that devil girl from Mars for that work. Oh, dude, she would have been a total boss bitch. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, interesting movie, interesting time capsule. Again, I feel like it's one that I would probably need to go back and rewatch to fully digest. Cause like I said, right now I feel like there's a ton of stuff that was kind of, I kind of just checked in and out of because I wasn't a hundred percent invested, but nevertheless, I still love the visual style of it. I think it looks cool. I think there's some good performances. Um, I really like some of the special effects work at the end 
Um, I won't give too much away, but um, there's some special effects stuff. And, and nothing amazing, just kind of like it, optical effects and some overlays and stuff that I thought looked really cool. But overall, uh, an interesting flick um, that I'm glad I watched, but not one that I was like 100% in love with either. Yeah, I, I think that's about fair. I mean, that's that's pretty much how I felt. Uh, you know, this is, it's not a perfect movie. I'm, I'm glad that they tried to make this and that they were reasonably successful. But I, I think you can certainly feel uh, some roughness, you know, in terms of the, the story and the way it's plotted out. But I don't know. It's it's one that I think I'll, I'll probably think about for a while. And I, I'll probably go back to this and rewatch it. So... Yeah, I'd almost be kind of curious to read the novel that it was based on, because it's based off a, a novel that was written in 1956 uh, by Frank M. Robinson, who's an interesting character in and of himself. Uh, not only was he a science fiction writer, he was the speech writer for Harvey Milk uh, during his political days. Um, but yeah, he wrote stuff like this, and The Glass Inferno is probably his most uh, other famous stuff, but yeah, he's continued to write sci-fi, uh, up until, uh, his death in, uh, 2014. That seems a, a little bit wild to me that this is based on a book that is that much older than the movie. You know, it feels, and who knows what they adapted and what they changed. Certainly that swinging sixties party was probably not written out in the book. Probably that, you know, the music that was playing was probably not described note by note in the book, but it, this feels so late sixties to me that, it, that yeah, I would be curious to, to check out that original book. All right. But I think that probably about wraps it up for the power. Uh, it's out there. Check it out. I say, uh, we'll take a quick break and we'll come back to talk about starship troopers. Stick around. Tell your friends about junk food dinner. What for? What for? I hate them so much. What for? Nobody likes this crap. They're just pretending. I like David Lynch. Look at me. I got the most out of print records you ever saw in your life. Tell your friends. What for? What for? What for? Tell your friends about junk food dinner. Oh, no. Uh, David Lynch. No one likes him. Oh, no. What for? Oh, no. Oh, no. The ruinous roach is destroying my food. Rags, the repulsive rat is wrecking my business. Termites are destroying my home. We want action. Yeah, just like little diamonds in the sky. 
Every day, federal scientists are looking for new ways to kill bugs. Your basic arachnid warrior isn't too smart, but you can blow off a limb. It's still 86% combat effective. Here's a tip. Aim for the nerve stem and put it down for good. Would you like to know more? our cities. But on November 7th, they'll learn they messed with the wrong species. Starship Troopers opens everywhere Friday. Welcome back to Junk Fod Dinner. The final movie this evening is Starship Troopers movie. Came out in 1997, directed by Paul Verhoeven, uh, and it's just absolutely wonderful. Um, in this movie, um, which is based on an old-timey science fiction book by Robert Heinlein, um, we have uh, humans in the in the not too distant future are in a, an intergalactic war with uh, space bugs. Apparently humans are out there colonizing the universe and um, they find some space bugs and they have to fight them. Uh, we see this through the eyes of Johnny Rico, uh, Dizzy Flores, Carmen Ibanez, uh, played by Casper Van Dien, Dina Meyer, Denise Richards, uh, respectively. Uh, Jake Busey's also here. You know, Patrick Harris is also here. Um, some of the best actors that you could ever want to see in a movie are also here, including Clancy Brown, Michael Ironside, um, etc. Um, this is a movie I first saw when it came out in theaters, and I remember it being fun. Um, but like pretty much everybody in 1997, the the satire eluded me. The satire eluded us all. Uh, we were living in in uh, Bill Clinton times. So a uh, satire of, you know, a very RoboCop esque satire. This feels very much like a kind of spiritual successor or sequel to, to RoboCop in terms of the things it's, it's lampooning. Um, you know, this movie, um, 
really kind of goes hard at the idea of super patriotism, uh, blind militarism. Uh, it, it really, you know, I mean, you know, the idea of, you know, humans fighting bugs is a very fun metaphor. No, I mean, not fun, but it's a, a metaphor for kind of how when you're at war, you dehumanize the other side. And I, I feel like a lot of that stuff was lost in the very uh, peaceful quote unquote times of, of the nineties to whereas if this movie would have come out just five years later, it would have been way too on the nose. It wouldn't have even been satire. Like, like this is like, it's a little crazy to me, like just how much this feels like a movie that is a response to nine 11 and the war in Afghanistan and all that kind of stuff, but came out much, you know, a few years before it, like it's, it's a very interesting movie. Um, in that it's, way. It's also kind of wild to me that critics didn't get the satire nature of this, considering like a good chunk of this is kind of about like how the media portrays war and, and how like people can be like misled into thinking that war is exciting or, you know, heroic from, you know, news media, like, like all those, do you want to know more kind of little segments and it, it just seems like so obvious. And then you walk away from this movie and your takeaway is, well, this glorifies war. It's, it's like, no, <laughs> like that's exactly the point they were trying to make, dude. Yeah. And, and I mean, especially coming from Verhoeven because Total Recall and Robocop, I feel like were applauded for, for their satire of, of these things. And so, yeah. So the, the fact that like this really fell on deaf ears at the time is, is interesting. And it might be because it's based on the book and the book is very, like is very pro like this book the book is like very much like yo check it out we're gonna go to war and it's very heroic and cool so like i don't know maybe maybe people were just bringing that into it um and not getting verhoven's take on it or something but um yeah it is i mean looking at it now i mean it's yeah like the the do you know like there's you know one probably the the, you know the best satire scene in the movie is like they do one of those television clips and it's, you know, the news is showing us children who are doing their part to win the war. And it's just kids stepping on cockroaches. And it's like, that feels so like post 9-11 to me, just like this very empty uh, activity that means nothing that people are just like, yeah, check it out. These kids are doing their part. Look how patriotic these kids are for doing this. Like, But but I, I do think that there's historical precedent for that stuff that Verhoeven is, is commenting mm, on. Yeah. I mean, if, if you look at like wartime America, like there's all kinds of like Superman slapping Japs, you know, like all this kind of stuff that feels like this weird kind of concerted social effort to put everybody into this like us versus them mentality. Yeah, for sure. I mean, yeah, you know, yeah, propaganda is certainly not new by the time uh, 9-11 rolled around. But like, yeah, so much of it just feels very specific to 9-11. Like, like the cockroach thing kind of feels like freedom fries, like this empty thing. And like, um, and especially the the attack on Buenos Aires, like the, the bugs la- launch a meteor that falls on Buenos Aires, which is where our characters are from. And then that is what prompts Johnny Rico to get back into the military. Like that just feels like, I mean, we, you know, that was like, a, such a cliche at the time. Like oh, I joined the military the day after nine 11 and I don't, yeah, it's like so much of this just like feels very nine 11. And I mean, maybe, you know, I mean, I probably, I'll, you know, if this was the year 1947 or something, it would probably feel very Pearl Harbor too, I guess. But like, um, well, the other thing that this movie I think kind of presages is 
the movie Avatar. I think a lot of this movie looks like Avatar in terms of like the human military, like space marine kind of stuff. The difference being Avatar has no satire element. Like it is completely earnest in its <laughs> depiction of fascism being the right way. Yeah, yeah, that is true. And also the blue cat people are not as cool as these bugs. Um, absolutely true. <laughs> and yeah, so this movie has like, you know, it has a lot of fun stuff to it in terms of like just how over the top um, like they treat like, you know, these characters, like they're very like 90210, like they're pulled like straight from like uh, like 90210 type of stuff and like soap opera type stuff, like Saved by the Bell. And then like Verhoeven juxtaposes like the the wholesome corniness of our main characters with like the horrors of war. Like they're, you know, like the whole time, like they're getting amped up and like they're training and like they're having fun. And like before they go off to war, like they promise to always be best friends and like all this silly nonsense. And then they get to their first fight and you, you know, and you would expect in a, in an action movie, like it goes well and Johnny Rico's a hero, but no, like pretty much like 60% of all of our characters die horrifically. And then uh, Johnny Rico, we think he's dead. And then, um, you know, it's, you know, on the big wall of everybody who's died is like 300,000 people die in this one battle. Um, it says that Johnny Rico has been killed in action. So then his friends take the note of saying that he's been killed in action. And like, they run up to him where he's like recouping in like this tank. And they're like, it says you've been killed in action. And like, he gives them like a thumbs up and like, he laughs like while he's like recouping from like near death. And like, like nothing in this has like any weight at all to it. Like Buenos Aires gets destroyed. Johnny Rico's family is dead. And in the next scene, he's like getting tattoos with his buddies. Like there's no weight at all to any of the death. And it's like so beautifully like humorous and like perfect, like such a perfect way to like, uh, you know, to, to kind of point out how we portray war both in media and in real life and like how it actually is. Um, and then and there's a scene where like the troops after a battle are rewarded with beer and footballs. <laughs> like, it's so pitch perfect. It's so wonderful. Um, all the adults in this are like all maimed and have horrible injuries. Like they're all like all the teachers and like instructors are like all missing limbs and stuff, which I think is also a funny touch. Um, and then at the end, like nothing really happens. Like every, you know, spoiler alert, I guess. Like we're we're still at war by the time we reach the end, and all that has happened is that our characters have just replaced the older characters, like in their uh, positions, and that's it. And then things just keep going on and on and on um, in an endless loop of war. Well, um, there's even that beat specifically where like the superiors don't want them to like bomb the entire planet because they want the war to continue. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, and then, and also in doing so Neil Patrick Harris, who by the end of this movie is just straight up dressed like a Nazi to really hammer at home what Paul Verhoeven is doing here. And he, he captures the leader of the bugs and, and in such a like darkly funny scene, like he's, he's been trying to hone his psychic powers the whole movie. And then he, captures the bug and he tries to like talk to it telepathically and he says uh you know it's afraid and then he says it again with a big smile on its face it's afraid and everybody starts cheering 
Like it's <laughs> so terrible. Uh, just like that that's their reaction to this poor defenseless thing that they've captured and have made afraid. And can um, we talk about what it looks like? Please do. It looks like a pussy. <laughs> it does. It does look like that. Um, and it has a, a fun uh, suction cup needle mouth thing that it uses to drill out uh, people's brains, which I, I like a great deal. Just, ba, ba, like female, boom. just like female genitalia. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so yeah, I don't know. I love this movie. I think this is... I mean, Paul Verhoeven, we've talked about. Kevin, you've infamously talked about it. This man, banger after banger of all the yeah. best movies. Robocop, this, Basic Instinct, Total Recall, Showgirls. Like, he's just giving you fucking everything. That and he's still doing nun it. Nun movie? The Farting Nun movie, L. Like, he's. Nobody uh, likes L. I like L. I've got the most out of print records. I like L. <laughs> <laughs> um,. And yeah, so I don't know. And even if you want to ignore all that stuff, like even if you want to just like ignore the fact that this is totally, you know, talking shit about the military industrial complex and propaganda and all that stuff, it's still just a fun action movie. So, I mean, enjoy yourself on that level too. So I think this movie is a classic banger. What do you guys think about it? Yeah. Um, I love this movie. I've loved it since it came out. I saw it in the theater opening week. I was stoked on this. And at the time when it came out, I didn't know any of the history. I didn't know that it was um, based on the, you know, Robert Heinlein novel. I didn't even know that it was directed by Paul Verhoeven um, because that just wasn't a thing that I paid attention to when I was 15. But I just knew it looked like a fucking sweet-ass movie, and I wanted to see it. And even a lot of, like like you said, the military-industrial complex satire of it, when I saw it at 15, went over my head. But didn't matter, because just on its surface, as just a sweet sci-fi movie, it works. But the more I watch it, the older I get, the more I pick up on little things, um, the more I love it. And I, I think that's why it has endeared for so long, and it, it remains... Uh, to this day, like one of my favorite movies from the nineties for sure. Um, but yeah, just overall, it's, it's a ton of fun. Um, it is weird. You know, the, the thing that I, I, that was kind of off putting when I, not off putting, but just kind of strange when I, I remember when I first saw it. And I guess this is maybe a relic of the time that it was written, but it, I always thought it was so weird how gung ho the kids were to be in the military, you know what I mean? Which seemed so different than what I was used to because like everybody in this movie, like they're smart, bright kids, you know, basically coming out of high school and they, they, all they want to do is be in the military. You know what I mean? And it's like this kind of weird world where the military is like what you like want to do. Like if you are a top scientist or a top doctor or a top, whatever you want to go into the military. That's where, you know, the future is, that's where the technology is. And I think that's kind of like an, an idealized idea of the military, because I think that's how they try to sell you on the military. You know, like I remember seeing commercials as a kid, like, you know, like come to the military. If you're a techie, you can work with the top, top computers and top stuff. It's like, that's not really what it's like. You know what I mean? It's like, 
you know, a lot of times the military is an option for people that don't really have a lot of other options. And granted, I'm not saying that there isn't some high tech work and, and promising careers within the military, but it, it definitely feels like a throwback to the time, like post world war two or like, you know, around world war two where the best and the brightest wanted to fight in the military. And it, it was something that people were gladly volunteering for, not something that people were actively trying to avoid. So that, that's a weird kind of juxtaposition as well. And obviously, you know, when the enemy is not human, it, it makes it even more interesting because now you've got a, another kind of weird juxtaposition where it's like, you know, yeah, it's it's easy to, to join forces when it's these kind of inhuman bugs that you're fighting. Um, but yeah, I love the futuris, futurism of this as well. There's a lot of cool stuff. Um, you know, I like kind of like the gender equality in this where there's, you know, like specifically like the Diz character who's like, you know, just as tough as the dudes and they all shower in, uh, you know, in uh, unisex showering facilities and it's no big deal. Again, I think that's more just a, you know, Paul Verhoeven attempt to get some more boobs into the movie, but nevertheless progressive in its own interesting way. Um, I love... I, I still to this day think about that tattoo machine and wonder where that fucking technology is because they all get tattoos and it's like this machine that just lasers a, tat, a perfect tattoo on your arm. And, you know, I'm not trying to put any of our uh, tattoo artists out of business, but I think I would be more apt to get a tattoo if I knew that like a machine was going to do it perfectly and not, you know, some heroin addicts going to fuck it up. But, you know, that's just me. Maybe I'm taking some of the, the human touch out of the, the tattoo, but I like that idea of a, you know, a laser tattoo machine that'll uh, hook you up in a few seconds and, and do it perfectly. You won't stream a movie, Kevin Moss. You're dedicated to the dying art form of the drive-in, but you will stream a tattoo. Okay. Yeah, I don't know. It's one of those things I think about often. I, I'm like, where's that technology? Starship Troopers. Uh, Sailor I like, Jerry's rolling around in his grave right now. <laughs> For sure. Uh, I like the weird futuristic football that they play with that like weird steel yeah. football. And I like that their team was kind of based on the, the colors of the Cincinnati Bengals. Kind of fun. Uh, but, the, you know, I like their the military outfits in this. I like... Uh, I like that people just, there's scenes where people just, uh, and main characters just get mauled and killed seemingly at the drop of the hat. You get connected to a character, and then next thing you know, a giant fucking bug mandible is piercing their thorax, and you're like, oh shit. Well, I guess that's the end of that character. So I like that. It's a lot of fun. Um, I like everybody in this, even though they, like you said, Parker, like they seem like they're like straight out of a Melrose place or something. I think they all work for the role and the kind of vibe that they're trying to give on this. I think the special effects look great, uh, even by today's standards. I mean, yeah, you can kind of poke holes in some of the mid 90s CGI, but at the same time, compared to a lot of the other mid 90s CGI, this shit looks, I think, pretty, pretty great and still holds up. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, I think because they use like most of what they use is like practical effects. So when 
the CG stuff comes, like your eye already knows that it's real. So you just kind of buy into it. Like, yeah. And a lot of the scenes where they fight CGI bugs are at night and that helps too. But yeah, it, it all looks really good. I'm not sure if you guys saw that Phil Tippett documentary that came out a couple of years ago, but there's a big chunk on how he did the effects for this for Starship Troopers. And the thing that I never knew before seeing that is that a lot of the CG stuff that you see in this, despite being CG, like has its roots in practical analog stuff. Like he would build an actual sculpture of these bugs and then 3D scan it rather than doing it in the computer. And then when they would animate it even they would use a real puppet physically there with their hands to animate it like it was stop motion. And the computer, it's like hooked up into the computer. So the computer would read the motions instead of having a guy in a cubicle with a mouse, you know, clicking and dragging things around, which I think is how you mostly do it. Now he was trying to keep it as practical as possible, even in the CG stuff. Well, and I think that goes a long way because like I said, I think it, yeah, it looks great. And not only that, there's, and, and like Parker said, you pair that with, then like the aftermath scenes where they do have huge practical set pieces of these dead bugs with this, all this real goop, you know, pouring out of it and they're covered like all the, the, the starship troopers are covered in this weird orange slime and stuff. I think, you know, that combination of, of practical and like you said, uh, kind of realistic puppetry mixed with the CG, uh, I think goes a long way to make this look really cool. Uh, have you guys seen any of the sequels? Because despite how much I love this movie, I have never seen any of the sequels, which all just seem kind of straight to video and probably not worth my time. I've never seen them, despite the fact that part two is directed by Phil Tippett. I think the only thing he ever directed. And, you know, his his work with the effects in this is so strong that it would lead me to believe that would mean part two would be good as well. But I've heard that it's bad. Yeah, I've seen part two. And it is not good. It's very different. It's more like Alien. Like it's basically just Alien, but like with small bugs. Like, um, but the effects are cool. Like there's a lot of cool gore and stuff. But um, yeah, maybe eventually I'll get around to it. But yeah, I mean, this one is just such a stone cold classic that I, uh, you know, I'm I'm happy with just this. I don't don't need any additional Starship Troopers in my life because this one does the job and does it right. So yeah, big fan of this. Yeah, I I remember being 14 years old, you know, when this movie was coming out and thinking for some reason that I wanted to dislike this movie. I I think I felt like it was like it represented some kind of like dividing line in sci-fi where it was like, this is new sci-fi and it's all, it's got all this CGI that I I don't want in my movies. And it's, it, I don't know. It felt like it was kind of like just a, a from a distance. It looked like a Michael Bay picture, you know, and it's like you said, it's got that Melrose Place kind of casting. And I just didn't want any part of this. But, you know, inevitably, when it hit video stores, I think I probably rented it first week because, you know, there, there's not a whole lot of stuff to rent. I'm guessing uh, early 1998 or so. And immediately I, I fell in love with this movie. You know, I, I loved it then and, and I still love it now. Um According to Letterboxd, I last saw this in 2017 and in 2012 before that. And I think I will probably continue with, with my traditional once every five years viewing for this movie. I think that's probably about the right pace for this movie. Um, there's a ton of stuff in this. Like I, I had forgotten how many things they pack into this movie. You know, like you mentioned, that weird indoor football league. I, I completely forgot about that. I didn't remember that. Uh, 
Doogie Howser does those weird mind control experiments on his pet ferret in this. Um, I thought that was fun. I didn't remember that the uh, the movie features a very strange cover of David Bowie's I Have Not Been to Oxford Town, sung by like a girl group at a party. Uh, it's kind of weird. Uh, which, by the way, that, that whole party scene is probably, you know, one of, I would imagine, two dozen scenes in this movie that have like over 500 extras on screen. Like this movie is just jam packed full of the biggest crowd scenes you've ever seen in any movie. What You know, whether it's at the military academy uh, or it's, you know, in these giant battle sequences, it's just chock full of people. And I think the bigness the bigness of this movie overall just kind of makes it a fun watch, you know, day or night. Like you said, you can choose to just turn your brain off and and watch this as a big dumb action movie. And I think it works, you know, I think it works just fine that way. And and if you want to turn your brain on and tune into some of the satire, it's there for you. And in a lot of cases, and I think almost every case in this movie, they find ways to layer the satire on top of what is already entertaining. So like, in the middle of these crazy battle scenes, there's like these wartime social media guys kind of live streaming what these guys are up to. You know, they're running around with cameras and these soldiers are, are like posing for the camera while their best friends are getting ripped to shreds by bugs. And that's the kind of satire where it's like, oh, cool, I can enjoy this crazy action scene where people are getting shredded, you know, bit to bit. Um, but at the same time, there's, you know, this little satire in here about, you know, uh, how these people want to be portrayed and, and, and that's fun too. So uh, it's got all that. It's got all the gore that you would ever want in an action movie. This is, this probably got to be like the goriest movie made for a budget like this. I would think like normally you got to call up like the Polonia brothers or something, you know, and ask them to, to pull out their, their bucket of butcher's blood or whatever uh, for something this gory. But here we are with a you know hundred million dollar movie or whatever this is, that's just chock full of some of the nastiest stuff that you'll see in a movie, um, which I think is fucking yeah. sick. Yeah, like there's that news footage they show of the the Mormon missionaries who went to set up an outpost on one of the bug planets in the aftermath of it, and there's just like hundreds of like ripped up bodies like on screen, like it, it's wonderful. Yeah, yeah. And then even in, you know, the actual battle scenes themselves, like, I, I don't know how many people get their limbs pulled off or de- decapitated or just blown to bits, but it's it's quite a few. Um, and like you said, the CGI actually looks pretty good, you know, despite the fact that there is, I think, a, a fair amount of CG in this. A lot of it is pretty seamless. And I, I think credit to Phil Tippett for, you know, the, the work that he did trying to keep it as analog as possible. Um, I do highly recommend that Phil Tippett documentary. If you haven't seen it, I forget what it's called, but there's only one Phil Tippett documentary that came out, I think in the past couple of years, it's on canopy right now and, and probably other places. But, um, I never knew before seeing that, like how much of a Phil Tippett movie this was. I mean, it's not just that he did the creature designs and some of the effects, uh, according to, I can't remember if it was the producer of this or if it was Verhoeven himself, but, one or the other of those guys says in the documentary that effectively Phil Tippett was like an uncredited second director on this, that he effectively directed all of those bug attack scenes that we see, uh, you know, on that desert planet, that that's all him. So that's probably the best stuff in this movie. So I I think that's pretty impressive. 
um, and does make me want to check out that second one, even even if it's not supposed to be that great. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm glad that we watched this. You know, it's it's not as good as RoboCop, but it's in the same ballpark. And uh, yeah, I think I'll probably always love this movie. Nice. Uh, well, that does it for Starship Troopers, an all-time classic banger. Uh, we're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we are going to explain why we're all blue-eyed and blonde-haired yet living in Buenos Aires. So stick around. Because that's where all, all the Nazis escape. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it up for this installment of the junk food dinner podcast we want to thank everybody for listening not only this week but for low these many 13 years that we've been that all three of us have been recording this podcast um certainly a lot of big news this week so like like we said earlier in the show drop us a line let us know what you think of the changes uh let us know what what you think bowman and i should talk about in the future uh, you can do so by leaving us a message at jfdpodcast at gmail.com uh, or call us up at 347-746-JUNK. That's 347-746-5865. Um, we're also on the internet at junkfooddinner.com where you can find handy-dandy links to all of our back episodes and all kinds of stuff like that. Uh, calendars in which you'll see you know, what's coming next on the show. And next week is our... Uh, world famous patreon picks week jfd 655 in which we will be reviewing the long alluded to and, and now finally becoming a reality the adventures of mark twain from 1985 by amen slipstream from 1989 picked by john from dayton and the brood from 1979 picked by portland paul should be a fun sci-fi february patreon picks week we look forward to that uh, in between then and now, like I already said, send us some communiques. Uh, let us know what's going on in your world. And, uh, and we'll see you next week, I guess. Until then, this is Send Byro. For your other two friends, Kelvin Moose and Perky, Beantown Bowman. Thank you, Washington Dishes. Let's go to the bush.
They've got his country. Now they want his mind. A youngster in East Europe needs facts. He needs a mind of his own. He needs radio free Europe. Looks like a pussy. <laughs>